previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. Still makes me mad. I mean, I love baseball, but let's face it, it is not as diverse as it used to be. And maybe it is at the player level, but at the manager level, it's still very tough. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. It's time for another episode of the Sports Refuge, the podcast where guests share their connection to sports. As always, I'm your host, Earl Holland. Ball is life is a term that explains the devotion, obsession, and passion for the game of basketball. And as part of this compilation episode, focusing on several former hoopsters, the guests discuss their love for the game and their path to hardwood success. Among those interviewed from previous episodes of the podcast include... Linwood Outlaw, as he shares how, as a Baltimorean, he's become a passionate fan of the Philadelphia 76ers and more. Snow Hill High School alum Courtney Keefe, who starred on the basketball court, as she talks about her return to her alma mater to coach her team to a regional title for the first time since 1992. Matthew Lang on growing up in the basketball hotbed of Prince George's County, Maryland, and being a camp counselor to a future NBA megastar. Dayona Godwin's journey from becoming a 2,000-point scorer at Stephen Decatur High School to becoming a valuable part of a University of Maryland Eastern Shore women's basketball team whose run for a MEAC tournament title was halted due to the COVID-19 outbreak. Former radio personality and TV sportscaster Paul Butler talks about the opportunity to coach with his former high school hoops coach Butch Waller and being able to coach his own son Paul III at his alma mater, Wicomico High School in Salisbury, Maryland. Hearst News White House reporter Bree Jackson's basketball journey led to an opportunity to play at the Division I level for the University of Maryland women's basketball team, and how basketball was so ingrained in Greg Bosman's life that it led to two stops at the Division I college level, and ultimately the opportunity to turn around the girls' basketball team at his alma mater, Chris Field High School. And now, it's time for tip-off for this episode of the Sports Refuge Podcast. So, Linwood, you have a very interesting background as a sports fan. You are from Baltimore, Maryland, and mm-hmm. while you cheer for a lot of the Baltimore teams, the Ravens, the Orioles, you mm-hmm. are uniquely a Philadelphia 76ers fan. How did yeah. that happen? <laughs> I get asked that question all the time, man. It, it goes back to my favorite player of all time is Charles Barkley. Right. So he started out his career as a 76ers fan. That was my favorite all-time player. still is to this day. So I grew up just following him in his career. Um, when he got traded to Phoenix, I tried to be a Suns fan because he was there, but it just it just didn't feel the same. So, And then I was pretty much, I guess you would say, like a neutral basketball fan as a young kid, but I was still a Sixers fan at heart. And then, you know, my second favorite player came along, Allen Iverson, and I just became wrapped up into the team all over again. And it's just pretty much has just been that way just my whole life, man. It started back when I was a kid. I made that first connection with Charles, you know, and then once Allen came along, that was my second favorite player of all time. And those were my two favorites, bar none. And um, I just became a fan and just stuck with him ever since, man. So it's been a lifelong thing. Like I said, Charles went to the Suns. My grandmother bought me a Suns jersey. <laughs> I tried to get on board with that, but it just wasn't happening, man. I couldn't get on board with it. That's my basketball team, man. I'm a little fan, you know, and that's who I ride for. 
I know they are like very, very contrasting styles. Of course, Barkley, lunch pail type of player would go to work, get the rebounds, get those points. And then Iverson, a completely different style, the crossover quickness, the speed, the heart, the determination. How do you feel those two players, while different styles, enamored themselves to Philly fans? Well, I think Iverson had lunch pail uh, type of mentality as well. You know, um, I mean, say what you want about his practice habits, how he interacted with coaches. I mean, he was a controversial player to be kind. But I think that when he was on the court in the heat of battle during games, he gave it his all. He gave it 110% all the time to me. I personally have never seen a game that Iverson played in which he just did not give 100%. Maybe other people have. I haven't. And I feel like uh, with Charles, Charles was a guy who I think I mean, look, you know, if you want to consider him, he basically was an undersized player at his position, but played bigger than the game, you know. And I mean, he just played with the best of them at a not so ideal height. It was rugged, made it as big an impact on the game as anybody. And I think that they both had personalities that you just couldn't help but be fascinated by. And on the court, they just gave the kind of effort you couldn't help but admire. I felt like those guys were natural-born competitors, and that's what drew me to them. I think a lot of guys are born to guys that, that win a lot of championships, right? Like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and those guys are great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to take anything from them. But, you know, for me, um, also like and respect above all that competitive spirit, that competitive fire. You know, I think a lot of you know, some friends would think it's weird. I like guys that have never, you know, won championships. But, hey, man, those are my, my guys and my players, and I feel like they did things on the court that would be respected. It's funny about Allen Iverson. People tend to forget that team he took to the finals. It was sort of like the early days, and I hate having to compare this. It was probably one of the few times you'll hear me say LeBron James, but look at the early LeBron James Cleveland teams, and I compare them to that one Sixers team that went to the finals that basically that Iverson dragged to the finals. I feel mm-hmm. like that Iverson doesn't get that much respect when it comes to carrying a team. He carried that team. You know, he had an older Matumbo and, and some of those other guys were not big name players. There was no Scottie Pippen. There was no Clay Thompson, Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade and things like that or Shaq or Kobe, depending on which right. perspective that you have about those tandems. Iverson carried that team and I feel like that sort of gets uh, overlooked, especially nowadays everybody looks at LeBron being the guy who carries some of these guys that really shouldn't be on the team to the finals. Yeah, I mean, I hear that comparison a lot. I heard it a lot during this past finals run, man. Like, when I first heard it, I just kind of laughed a little bit because it's like, to me, I feel like Iverson carried a team that, it's hard to say, man, because to me on the outside looking in, it's like he, he basically was the engine for that team. He carried that team all the way around. I think a lot of people, a lot of knocks on Iverson is that he, he was, you know, difficult to play with. A lot of people had to adjust their styles. Well, to me, I feel like you have to do that with LeBron James. Take Kevin Love, for example. Kevin Love playing alongside LeBron James wasn't the guy he was in Minnesota, okay? And I think that the portrayal at times is just that he's not rising to the occasion. No, an adjustment playing with LeBron. And it's all in perception. I think that sometimes you just have to make sacrifices in your game to play with him. And yeah, those sacrifices will pay off in the long run. But the bottom line is that I think that whenever you play along a great player, you have to adjust and sacrifice. That's just the name of the game. And I think that with Iverson, it's easier to portray that in a negative light versus LeBron. Because LeBron is a guy who has the ability to make teammates better and things of those. So it's not easy playing next to him. And the most difficult part is that when the team fails, you're going to be to blame for it. And I think that LeBron fans have a hard time accepting that at times, but it's true, you know, and I respect the hell out of LeBron James. I do. I think he's a great player, but 
he had way more talent on this year's team that he dragged, quote unquote, to the finals as opposed to the one that Iverson had. I mean, Iverson didn't have a legitimate secondary scoring option. If you ask me, I think Kevin Love was a legitimate second scoring option to me. Okay, and then you had other options on the team like Jeff Green and guys that should be able to play well. The guys that they made trade for was Jordan Clarkson and uh, I forget who else it was. I, but I think Larry Nance. Yeah, they, they, they had a lot of, of talent on Cleveland. I can't tell you why those guys didn't raise their game or rise to level of expectation or whatever it was, but the bottom line is that I think that LeBron was dealing with a significantly more talented team than what Iverson was dealing with because I think that whenever they needed points, they had to turn to him. And it seemed that way with LeBron, but I think also LeBron seemed a little too willing at times just to do everything. And I think that, you know, when, when you play with a guy who demands the ball so much, it can be difficult to play with him. It can be difficult to find yourself, especially in the postseason. So, I mean, that comparison to me is laughable to this year's team. I think that it was more surprising they took the team in 07 to the finals than the team we took to the finals this year. And I also think that, you know, frankly, he was complacent with just getting there. I think he was he was just happy to be there. It was like, okay, job's done. You know, I know that my numbers are going to speak for themselves. But yeah, that, I think it was more impressive what Iverson did in 01 compared to what LeBron James did this past season. Yeah, and I also think looking at this team and ever since LeBron came back. LeBron has basically been the GM. Everybody can say what they want. Uh, David Griffin and the current GM, they were all GM in name only. LeBron had big control over that roster. Those early teams where Danny Ferry was running the front office and putting that team together, those were the times where, yeah, like you said, 07. That's comparable to what Iverson did in that finals against the Lakers. But other mm-hmm. than that, I agree with you. If LeBron James, I don't know why he's so polarizing. I don't hate him. He works hard and he's one of the most durable players in the NBA. But other than that, I have players that I don't like, and one of them is now playing for one of my favorite teams, Dwight Howard. <laughs> you know what? I think that it was a good move for Dwight. I don't know how it's going to work out, but listen, I think he's an upgrade from Gortat, uh, and he got him at a reasonable price. So let's say even if it was just a complete and total fail, he's on a reasonable contract. They can move him midseason easily, I think. You know, for a team that's just, I don't know, just looking to add a body or whatever. But it, it's an interesting sign. It's funny how Dwight and LeBron are intertwined. And I, I, like I said, I feel like I'm going past my quota because I, I really don't like talking too much about all this LeBron stuff. But yeah. really, LeBron really didn't get that highly scrutinized until he didn't shake Dwight Howard's hand. None of that other stuff. Uh-huh. Him not showing up in the game against the Celtics in that finals after the supposed Delonte West stuff occurred. Nobody said anything there. It was was him not shaking Dwight Howard's hand. And that sort of started as sort of going to a wrestling reference, the Hulk Hogan S turn to the dark side all of a sudden. Uh, I mean, the same things. You look at it, the colors. The, he went from red and yellow to the black. <laughs> and then he came back. It sort of has a pro wrestling heel face turn type connotation to it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I remember that day. I personally didn't like it when he inched Dwight Howard's hand. I think that, but I also understood that LeBron was very young. Was he, I'm, I'm just guessing, like maybe like 25, maybe around that time. And he was just a young man. I think that, I think when you're still that young, you're still prone to, to, to make mistakes. Even though his explanation, it was kind of funny because on some level, I did understand what he was saying. He said, like, if you know, if you, uh, if you get beat down in a boxing match, you don't want to shake your opponent's hand, even though boxers shake hands all the time if they're in the bouts, right? But I understood what he was saying. But I see what you're saying. Um, I just think that LeBron does a lot of curious things. I think that, to me, 
I didn't like coming back to Cleveland, delivering a championship, then deciding, okay, you know what, I can't really, you know, tolerate playing with Dan Gilbert, so I'm going to go and just go to the Lakers and try to bring them a championship. I think that he picked a not-so-ideal time to join L.A., and I think that it would have been better for him to join L.A. around the time that he went to Miami. You know, but I think now, I mean, he's, he, however, I don't, listen, he keeps himself in great shape, but I think it's clear that he's moving towards the end of his career. So I think that things become less known about what he's going to be able to produce from this point forward. But I think he just does things in a, in a way that are curious at times. You know, I just think that it would have been nice for him to, to go back home and stay in Cleveland. I think it would have been nice to see that, but he has the right to go wherever he wants to go. I don't think he ever really had to go back to Cleveland at all. I think the letter that, that Dan Gilbert wrote was reason enough for him to never go back. If it was about owing the city of Cleveland a championship, he would have stayed in Cleveland until he accomplished that goal. I think he just felt like he had to make up for how he presented his decision to Miami and things like that, which was done in poor taste. The pre-championship parade he had the day after the decision was done in poor taste. I mean, I think that the interview that he cut before, was it before the finals when he, you know, he admitted that he tried, he told them to keep Kyrie, which I don't think was entirely truthful. I think he may have said it, but I don't think he really said it with any real belief. Because I think it was all a part of his grand exit plan. This is something I actually wanted to touch on in a piece I wanted to write about LeBron. But I think that that's really what it is. I think that LeBron is a great player. I think that he conducts himself very well off the court. He deserves a lot of credit for that. And I think that he's a great athlete and he sets a great example on the court. But I think that, you know, he doesn't do everything right, like all of us. We all don't do everything right, right? But I think that, you know, there are some things that give you pause. It's like, uh, why does he have to do that this way? You know, I get that that's his life and his career and things like that. You know, he doesn't like the fact that, that some people will hold him accountable for the super team era. I do. I think that it set a bad precedent for the NBA and it gave players uh, um, the will to just, you know, make it all about them. But in reality, the NBA is an entertainment business. And I mean, like if fans are saying they don't like they're only being like three or four good teams a year and everybody wanting to be in L.A. or Miami or somewhere with lots of palm trees and sun. I mean, that's a legitimate, to me, a legitimate gripe. You know, players don't seem to care about it because they want to make, oh, it's about them and the money and their happiness. You know, they don't want to be invested in what fans think about the product, but they want us to be invested in totally support over their happiness. So I think LeBron has had a lot to do with it. I've had discussions on Facebook about how it's a different era as opposed to just even 30 years ago. Just looking at some of those teams in the 90s, the Blazers, those Lakers teams, the Pistons, the Bulls, a lot of those teams were built through the ground up. Sometimes, yeah, you make some shrewd trades to get guys, like the Bulls making a trade with the Sonics to get Scottie Pippen. It's things like that, but they built their roster through the ground up. Those Blazers that went to the finals twice, they were, from the mid-80s on, were built up to go to the finals. The Rockets from the mid-90s. Olajuwon, everybody forgets about the one time the Rockets went to the finals in the 80s against the Celtics with Olajuwon. People forget about that. It's like everything... You know, you know the Celtics won the final, but nobody remembered that they played the Rockets. Yeah, a lot of those teams, the Knicks. Yeah, it's looking back at those teams, they were built from the ground up. They were a young team, no super teams, and some of the trades were made within reason and logic. Yeah, I know somebody will say the Showtime Lakers, but it's just so much information, and I'm like a transaction junkie, so I'm always looking at how these teams are built. 
some of these other teams made stupid trades with draft picks. Like, for example, yeah. the Cavaliers in the early days, the Sepian rule where you can't trade draft picks in consecutive years, that led to the Pistons getting better. The, the Warriors doing a stupid trade, that had led to the Celtics getting better. That built the Celtics dynasty. There was another trade that gave the Lakers James Worthy, basically, and I think that was Cleveland too. True trades are always going to happen. It, you know, everybody wanted to join together and band together. It's, it's something completely different. Yeah, and I mean, you know, listen, I think when the Warriors signed DeMarcus Cousins, that all of a sudden was too much for certain people, especially like the newfound Laker fans, the ones that are now, you know, new to the Laker family and they're now, you know, diehard Laker supporters. You know, it's like, oh, whoa, 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 what is this? Come on, man, this is unfair. Like, I saw a lot of outrage, but in my mind, I'm thinking like, really? Like, this is going on for a while now. And I think now all of a sudden this is just too much. It's just funny at times what's the tipping point for certain fans and, and certain, you know, analysts and spectators and things like that. And to me, the DeMarcus Cousins signing wasn't that big a deal because first I heard reports that he wasn't going to be available until like maybe December, January. Now I'm hearing it might be like closer to March. So I'm like, really, at the end of the day, like when I heard like that, they, that it could be that late that he returns like right before the playoffs, I'm like, well, really, what was the point of even going to go to state? But who knows when he's going to come back? He could be back sooner than later. He could be back way sooner than anyone expected. I don't know. I think that when I stepped back and I really, you know, assess his reasoning for joining them, it makes sense. I mean, you take a one-year deal. For his standards, it was pretty low salary. But, I mean, listen, you go there and win a championship, prove that you're healthy, you know, you make it worth your while. I kind of understood that. And I think there's always a question of how he fits in. And I think that when you're in a system and you're playing with other guys, fire the ball, like obviously you're playing next to, to me, the second best player in the league in Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, um, an electric offensive player, um, Clay Thompson, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, like, you find out exactly what kind of player you are when you're forced to play in a system. So I think that that in of itself, I mean, on paper, yeah, it may seem like a lot and it may seem insurmountable but it's all about how things fit in but you know, I think that teams are getting better around the league. The thing that just annoys me is how everybody wants to, to be in a, a big market all of a sudden, you know, and it, it just makes it difficult in small teams, almost to the point of like, why do these teams even exist? You know, if everybody just want to play in the major cities or the major markets, I, I never really understood that. And, you know, when teams willfully join up, I mean, it's like, okay, if I'm going to watch three first team legitimate all NBA players on one team, right, maybe four, how can you really expect a different outcome to what it is, barring injuries. So I think that's really all there is. I think the NBA still has a great product, but I think that players should should not be so sensitive when fans voice their concerns about certain things because sometimes, a lot of times, they have a good point. The NBA players are more fan-friendly than maybe some athletes in other sports. They're always accessible on social media and things like that. You feel like that would be really mm -hmm. one of their greatest strengths, but they seem to like shoot themselves in the foot when it comes to the quality of competition after that. Nobody's going to want to keep seeing the same finals year after year. I guess, thankfully, we won't see Cleveland versus Golden State. We don't even know who will be coming out of the east I mean, yeah well we know it's not cleveland and i don't think the lakers are coming out of the west lebron can do all he wants but he doesn't have the horses he's sort of stuck in another cleveland situation right now until he gets another star and i don't think you know right now it could be it's pretty much golden state golden state houston or bust that's it yeah it's gonna be interesting to see who comes out of the east that's gonna be fun very fun if i had to bet money on it i'll probably say golden state is going to go back to the nba finals 
I mean, this LA situation, we'll see. I mean, they have a lot of guys on that roster. They have a lot of talent, and we'll see how it all comes together. You know, people are taking, you know, big improvements from, like, Kyle Kuzma and Lonzo Ball and things like that. And it'll be an interesting dynamic. You know, people are saying LeBron wants to play off the ball more, so that may be, you know, that may help, you know, LeBron and Lonzo play better if, if Lonzo's just going to run the point. Uh, which is what I expect. I expect them to be the full-time point guard for their team. So we'll see. I and mean, you never know what they might do in midseason. You know, maybe, you know, Toronto is like, yeah, you know what, Kawhi Leonard is not feeling it. He ain't coming back. Let's just go ahead and just, you know, bite the bin. Let's let's send him to LA and see what, what kind of assets we get. I'm not ruling that out at all because I, I saw the picture they took with Toronto executives and, I mean, yeah, it looked like they couldn't pay the man to smile wide enough. I, I don't know what it was. This, it just seemed like a, a, a fake you know, picture. And I just, I just think that he's really begrudging being in Toronto because he wants to be in LA like every other player, it seems. So we'll see what LA does, but I think that right now it's probably going to be Golden State and, and a lot of people who are picking Boston. I guess that's a real possibility again, barring injury, but yeah, it's going to be real interesting to see what's going on out East because it's wide open now. Now, turning to your Sixers, a very interesting season, to say the least. They finally got over the stages of the process, made it to the playoffs, had a really heartbreaking series against the Celtics, and then leading into this whole offseason with the Brian Colangelo stuff, him, the burner accounts, and things like that. How could you best, as a fan, evaluate this season the Sixers had? To me, it was a complete success. I mean, look, I think we won with, I'm guessing here, like maybe 31, 32 games the previous year and then to win 52 games. And mind you, this is the first year that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid played together, right? I was not expecting 52 wins coming to the season. I was hoping for something like maybe 40. I wasn't even quite sure we want to get into the playoffs. But to win 52 games, to win something like, was it, uh, 17 consecutive games toward the end of the regular season, to win a first-round uh, playoff series, those were all steps in a positive direction. They all were. And I think that it was a complete success because I don't think that anyone really had any serious expectations for the team. I was expecting to be just a rebuilding year. I just wanted to see where Ben was. I wanted to see where Joel was. I wasn't expecting us to go on the run that we went on. I was impressed and I was surprised in a lot of ways. The series against Boston, I mean, listen, I was expecting to win it just from the standpoint that they were shorthanded. They didn't have Kyrie. They didn't have Gordon Hayward. But I think that in the long run, it'll be good for us if we use that failure to our advantage. Yeah, it sucked watching that. It sucks whenever you use a playoff series, period. But the bottom line is, is that you got to use disappointment to get better. And I, I see a Areas where Ben can get better, obviously with shoot outside shooting, developing some kind of shot, which I think really is all he needs at this point um, to really continue to climb up the ladder success. Um, obviously with Joel, number one, staying healthy, proving his conditioning. Because man, if he comes in with peak conditioning, he can be a scary player on both ends of the floor. You know, this year we didn't get like a Kawhi Leonard. LeBron uh, decided to go to LA rather than join fully, which is what I was expecting. But then we're going to have to focus on improving from within. I. I'm personally not a big fan of the trade they made on draft night when they traded uh, Michael Bridges and I believe they made a deal with the Suns for, why is his name not come to me? I forget who the kid was. But the bottom line is I didn't like the trade. I think that it's a bad precedent and it was a bad taste. I think Michael Bridges was kind of a piece that we needed, but sometimes you kind of have to gamble and roll the dice and put yourself in a position to get those kinds of players. And I think that the pick that they got from Miami was basically an unprotected pick, which could be a lottery pick 
much like the one we got from the Lakers, get Michael Bridges in this draft, it, it could pay dividends or put you in a position to land another piece somewhere down the road. So, you know, some moves you don't understand right away. I didn't, I personally didn't like the trade, but it is what it is. Um, we didn't have the kind of offseason I was hoping for. Yeah, losing to Boston was especially that second game in Boston, the third game back at home. I think we could have won game five, which is the one that sealed it for us. But you know, you have to learn from that. I think if you look at disappointment and use that to fuel you, which is what I'm hoping our guys are doing, then that will help you in uh, future years. So that's what I'm hoping for. And I'm also, you know, obviously coming to the season, I want to see what Markel folks can give us. Hopefully that'll be, you know, something that we can build on because if he can come in and give us something, that gives us a whole new dynamic altogether. And I think that maybe people start looking at the team differently. Since I moved to Northern Delaware, all I get is... Philadelphia sports, Sixers games, and things like that. Watching them progress, they've had that heart since they were basically stripped mine down and, and all the injuries started with Embiid getting hurt and then Simmons getting hurt. They would fight, they would scrap, they would play. They were truly a team that Philadelphia could get behind, but just the fact that they lost a battle of attrition. People would get hurt. Covington would get hurt. McConnell would get hurt. Things like that. You know, Eventually, I think that was a learning experience for those guys who had played, looking back even four years ago, playing those games where they would only win you know barely 11 or 12 games and i feel like that helped a lot of those guys especially as you add a healthy mb or a nearly healthy mb a simmons and then of course a sark and eventually once Fultz gets out there uh th- that'll play uh dividends as well and it felt like the biggest thing that i saw with them they had the heart it was the basketball iq that that needed work there were times they would make ridiculous mistakes, but I felt like with experience, those things would change. And then some of that youth showed up in that Boston series. Some some mistakes that, that should have been made, like that inbound pass, that really changed the whole outcome of that fifth game. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think it's yeah. just something that they just have to learn through repetition and through experience and that Brett Brown would have to crack down on. And I feel like, and I understand that Brett Brown wants to let them play and it's become more of a player's league. But sometimes right. you have to call a timeout just to get them refocused or just to stop the bleeding of a run because everybody knows basketball is a game of runs and all you need to do is just stop their run, maybe stop the momentum with the timeout and then things will change and then maybe you'll help you get on a run and maybe turn the table. That's a good point that you made. Um, yeah, I think Brett Brown made some some coaching mistakes. There, there's no question about that. And, I mean, frankly, I think he's making some questionable choices, filling in as general manager until an, a permanent one, which is a whole other mess in itself, thanks to, as you uh, pointed out, the, the Colangelo fiasco, right? But, yeah, and I think that that sealed our fate as well. But, again, you know, Brett, they, they signed Brett as a coach uh, to, to an extension for a reason. You know, he has to grow as well, and I think that he does. I like the fact that he comes from the San Antonio Spurs organization. I think that he has the, the makings of a good coach. But, yeah, without question, you, you hit it right on the head. He made some some questionable uh, coaching decisions that he's going to have to learn from and get better from. You've seen the game of basketball change, uh, especially over these past two or three decades. The biggest thing I've noticed is really the evolution or de-evolution of the big man, the use of the big man in basketball. Now you have guys who are good for screen and rolls and, and pick and rolls and things like that. But I feel like the age of the dominant center it might be over. Yeah, I think so. I mean, now and it's like <laughs> I don't think you get respect as a big if you don't have an awesome shot. Anthony Davis, I mean my goodness, I mean does it get more dominant than Anthony Davis in the post and on the inside? When he actually said he's trying to work his outside shot, that's when I'm like, okay, it's like you don't get true respect unless you have some form of an outside game. Me personally, I like traditional big men. Guys that get into the post, get to team some easy bucks, um, set the tone defensively, who stay rugged inside the paint. 
I, I still like that, you know. But obviously, he, for whatever reason, he's just trying to move away with that. This whole stretch forward thing. Like, I remember when a few seasons ago, it made a trade for Thaddeus Young, who to me is a small forward. Maybe something of a two-guard, but he's definitely a small forward. He's like a small forward, two-guard player. And there was talks about Minnesota making him their starting power forward. And I was like, what? And it's like, I just didn't see him as a power forward, but I guess he just wanted somebody that could just go down there. Then the intangibles that would go into being a power forward didn't matter as much, right? I think that somebody who could just step outside, make some shots. You have some ability on defense. I mean, a lot of teams want to go small nowadays. I and mean, that's the, you know, the way the league is trending. Which is why somebody like Wow, who was like a monster, a beast, one of the best players in the game, you know, is, is brought out by the lowly Brooklyn Nets just to sign a, what, well, I don't even know, was it, I guess, was it like a veteran minimum type deal with the Washington Wizards? I mean, and yeah, and this is actually coming off a decent season for Dwight because he actually played well for Charlotte. So, yeah, I mean, I just think that, you know, the league is just getting smaller and then they're going to use big men and they're going to use seven footers. You know, you got to. I don't know, have some type of outside game because like, that's the direction teams want to play and they want to move in and that, that's ultimately the style they want to play. Because I think of the the 90s, I think of some teams would use two centers maybe in the front line. I, I'll, I think about the uh, Lenny Wilkins and Atlanta Hawks. You'd have Kevin Willis, who's basically a center, play power forward. You have John Konkak as a center and that maybe was slowly starting to fade away and maybe you had guys who weren't truly seven-footers at center like Zoe well before the uh, Ben Wallace's and things like that but Alonzo Mourning wasn't seven foot six ten six nine six eleven you know nitpicking by inches and stuff like that wasn't a true seven footer but he was a true center I feel like if they were asked to do that in the 80s or 90s to become you know better shooters expand their game it would have happened but I don't think they would have uh, abandoned the whole back to the basket type of style of play that you don't see that much anymore. It's funny, you even look at Jordan, and we mentioned Jordan. Jordan was really good at backing somebody down when it came to getting into the post. I mean, I feel like that's lost among guards in general, too. Yeah. I think, man, defense isn't what it used to be in the NBA. I just don't think that the commitment to play defense is quite there um, at times. Even for teams that are considered good defensive teams, that's just how it is. I think that's all about scoring a lot of points and, and playing up and down basketball. But now, I guess, you can kind of be successful with that postseason now. I mean, it's just you're just saying a lot of things, I think, that are just more towards scoring points, going small. And, you know, you think about the situation Jaleel Okafor is in right now. Like he's probably as traditional big man as it gets. Now he's just trying to relearn the position that he had dominated in a certain way for so long just to latch on with the team. He was just our number three overall pick. Um, and the situation with Embiid happened. Um, and then, you know, he obviously needs to find a new home at that point. But he didn't even, things didn't even pan out with Brooklyn. And now he's just working out, hoping for an offer, might land over Miami, things like that. But he's just, he's the definition of a traditional big guy. And he's trying to put like an outside jumper or something like that, mid-range jumper, 20-foot jumper in his game was Arsenal just to get into a league. Whereas I feel like his best strengths is what they've always been, just playing low and being probably, you know, as automatic as it gets from the low post in terms of scoring. So it is setting a precedent where it's like, hey, if you want to, you know, survive long-term league, you have to be more versatile. You know, kind of like in the NFL with running backs, you know, they want they prefer backs to, to not only be able to burst out the backfield, but also be able to catch the ball, kind of like Le'Veon Bell, right? He's like a running back wide receiver type pisser. So I personally like this play, but I think the league is moving further and further away from it. Do you feel there is a particular aspect in the NBA or in basketball in general that is becoming a lost art? Um, well, 
I mean, the only thing that I can, you know, complain about a lot is that I just think that players nowadays just, they aren't naturally as competitive as at least as it appeared that players were back in the day. Um, I think that, you know, that's all about you know, the super team thing is the thing. It's a new trend. Um, but I think that also, to some level, while it also speaks to, you know, preserving your body over the aging game season, I have to do as much. I understand all of that. But I think there's also an element to it where it, it, you just take some of the competitive spirit out of it. Like, high-profile matchups in the NBA. To me, that's what it's all about. Like, when, when two great players are opposed against each other, and they're leading well-balanced teams behind them. I like that kind of stuff. And I miss that about the NBA because there was a point in time where that was the case. But they, I mean, there were some really some good, deep and talented teams in the NBA, but they, they seem like there always seem to be a lot of good matchups. And nowadays, more and more, you find that these guys are playing on the same team. And, you know, that's that to me, I guess, is what I personally think is just, you know, just slowly deteriorating it's just those high profile matchups because you had it on paper but you had you know in the finals but it was like the teams you know like the finals this past year i think was it was a stain on the league a little bit i mean it, it just wasn't really good it wasn't intriguing it wasn't exhilarating none of those things but we've had those kinds of matchups in the past but i think that more you're just seeing guys you know just want to team up as opposed to just go against each other in postseason i kind of miss those those elements like ai versus vince carter you remember that series um you know stuff like that um wasn't that the one where i think that's Went to the uh, graduation and came back and missed a shot. Was that the same? Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, missed it. Missed the buzzer. Then this the game. I mean, like <laughs> to me, that's the one of the best series I've ever seen. You know, ever. And um, and I missed those duels, man. I missed that. You know, but that's. I mean, that's just the way it is. Leave nothing stays. My mom always says nothing stays same forever. You know, and you know, you just roll with the changes. Um, I still love the sport, I still watch it, but I mean, there are some changes that I wish, you know, weren't happening, but they are, and I think that's what it is. I just that, you know, players wanting to to beat the other player, and now they just want to just team up with guys. Like I'm, I'm I keep reading reports that. You know, LeBron wants to play with KD, and and that is a possibility that K, that KD may consider playing with him. I mean, like if that happens, I, I don't. That might be like, all right, I think it's time to take a break from the league for me. But I mean, those things are just out there, and I mean, they're just rumors, they're just reports. But um, you know, the fact that those things are even discussed and and debated on talk shows, I mean, it just let you know kind of where players of today where their mindsets are. It's funny we were talking about that series. I did, it made me just think about a really stealthily good series. I don't remember the year, and I was just trying to look it up. But that series between Charlotte, the Hornets, and the Magic, it was the last season before they moved to New Orleans, and it was McGrady was on Orlando, and it was Baron Davis, and, and Tracy McGrady was talking too. all the trash, like, yeah, this will be the last game in Charlotte, and end up, Charlotte ended up winning that series. Yeah, uh, I remember that. And that was a series, one of the probably few series in the post-Jordan era that I really like that wasn't a Wizards playoff series. That was really a very intriguing series, and you don't see those things like that anymore. Maybe first round of this year's playoff, especially in the East, was very exciting. Second round was very exciting, even though we sort of knew where what was going to happen. It just all grinded to a halt once you got to the conference finals in the East. But the West, Western Conference Finals, that was very interesting. But other than that, yeah, I, I, it's the interest got to the point where – I mean, I was looking forward to the Stanley Cup more than I was looking forward to the NBA Finals. At least it was something different. 
Yeah, I was too. And I was the biggest NHL fan. But I mean, like, yeah, I think that there was more intrigue with uh, the Stanley Cup. If Boston were healthy, I, I would have preferred to see Boston there. But I mean, I think that I just wanted to see Puget just from the standpoint that LeBron James, I think that was the best matchup we could get. It just wasn't a good matchup. I mean, but I can't say that without being a hater. I don't think it was it was the NBA at its best this past June. And like I mean, what kind of intriguing matchup do you have? I think this year, Jazz and uh, the Thunder that was somewhat intriguing. I mean, when Westbrook wasn't snapping, man, it's just I mean that there was some intrigue there. But I don't know if I really call any first round series. I was just like, you know what, this was this was awesome. I mean, if you want to say Indiana and Cleveland, it, it was okay. It was an okay series. But what did it for me is when I think Indiana blew chances. Let it go to Game Seven against LeBron. I I think that it's over. LeBron is the kind of player you got to put him away early. And I think once Cleveland did that, it, the series just became predictable. It was okay, but I don't I don't think it was great. And I think that that's what I want to see. I mean, it's like you have the best chance of seeing great basketball in the playoffs. And it just makes the first and second round almost kind of pointless to watch because, you know, teams playing in those rounds, most of the teams playing in those rounds uh, won't affect the ultimate outcome, which is who's going to hoist the uh, Larry Brown trophy at the end of the year. Do you think Cavaliers-Rockets would have been a better series? I do. I think it was better. I also think Cleveland had a good chance to win that series. I just do. I think it would have been a much better series. Uh, no wonder, we're like to your point, it would have been so different, right? And I think that, you know, even if James Harden had dragged the team out as Chris Paul, I'd still think it more to watch as opposed to the Warriors just kind of toying with the Cavaliers, toying with LeBron James, the best player in the NBA. I mean, I just think that had they have, have we got the Rockets cast matchup, it would have been more fun. It would have been deeper. The games would have been more intense. The, the outcome would have been more up in the air, so to speak. That's how I see it. I think if Celtics had made it through and ended up facing the Rockets, you would have just seen the montage of the would have talked about 86 they would have talked about 82 hell the celtics basically lead the all-time series in the finals and things like that you would have got a lot of nostalgia callbacks to olajuwon to bird to ralph sampson you know the big three and things like that and the original big three if you can call them the big three there's been so many teams that have had trio of players that you can't really say that they're the original big three but, yeah, you would have seen a lot of callbacks to that, and I think that would have made it a little more interesting. This young team that's basically playing with one arm tied behind their back, doesn't know any better, taking on the Rockets. Golden State, it would have been a slaughter. It would have been like those first post-Jordan finals where some of them were just a drag. Just Nets, Lakers, Pacers, Lakers, not very fun to watch. Yeah, it was what it was. But I think that this year is going to be different. Just the standpoint of LeBron is in the same conference as Golden State. And I think that's going to be an interesting storyline to see how that plays out. And uh, the East grabs. So you take the intrigue where you can get it there. And I mean, it's going to be a fun race. Kind of like when Michael Jordan, that first year after Jordan retired the first time, something like that. Back then, you know, everybody felt like they had a chance to do it. Like, oh, snap, Jordan is retired. Let's do this. Let's, let's, let's do the business. Let's, let's try to get to the finals and, and, and see if we can win this thing. And I think you're going to see that kind of rejuvenation. I mean, listen, I think just from the Wizards' standpoint, I think the Wizards made some 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 low-key good moves, especially if they can figure out a way to use uh, Dwight Howard effectively to their advantage. I think they could be a good thing. They could make some noise. They could be a sleeper, um, at least on paper. We'll see how that pans out. But um, I think that, you know, teams are going for it, man. And it's, I think that that is going to be – exciting honestly like i i hate 
giving the Celtics credit for anything, man. But let's say if they were to get to the finals in one piece and going up against Golden State, I think that's a series Boston could win, actually. So we'll see, man. I think that this year it might be a good year, a good positive year for the NBA, and we'll see how it pans out. I think most of the entries in the East, and I think we could see some surprises out West. It's funny. A friend of mine always said Washington, for the past few years, had a team built to beat the Cavs but just could never get to the Cavs in the conference finals. They'd get derailed by Toronto. They'd get derailed by the Bulls. They'd get derailed by Atlanta. That one series with Paul Pierce probably be the greatest Wizards playoff series ever since they beat the Bulls in like the mid-2000s. That was an example. If they got past Atlanta, maybe they could have beat Cleveland and still probably lost to Golden State or San Antonio. I, I don't even remember who Cleveland ended up facing the finals. It probably was Golden State, but I feel like if Washington wins the Eastern Conference, if they ever win the Eastern Conference again, knowing how strong the West is, I think Wizards fans will be happy enough. So, yeah, I mean, to me, I don't think you can ever understate the accomplishment of reaching the finals. I think that's something to celebrate, for sure. But I think it also sets the anticipation for bigger and better accomplishments after that. So, yeah, I mean, let's say if the Wizards go to the finals next year, right? Yeah, I think the fans could be content with that. You know, would they be content with that the following year? The year after that, probably not. Because now it's like, all right, now how are we going to improve and, and get over the hump and, and actually win it all? Yeah, I think that there were opportunities and times where I felt like the Wizards were better than Cleveland, frankly, especially like in 06, 07, 08, all of those years when, you know, in uh, LeBron's early career. But somehow Cleveland just kept finding a way to pull it out. I mean, there were years where I thought that the Wizards were a better team on paper. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think a finals appearance, especially in the aftermath of Capitals winning the Stanley Cup. Yeah, that would be very satisfying for DC sports fans. Going back to what we were talking about, things that may be truly lost in the NBA, and I feel like it's going down to college basketball. The mid-range shot, that's something that a lot of people don't do anymore. I think everybody's either going for the high-flying aspect or they're going to try to be like Steph Curry. And the problem is you see that, especially during NCAA tournament time, everybody wants to be the hero. And I've seen games where teams lose. They're down by one. All they need is two. All they need to do is drive to the basket. They decide they want to take a 30-foot three-pointer when they don't need to, and they've lost too many games. And that's a case that... That basketball IQ is something that's missed a lot often. Everybody, I know you get in the rhythm of the game, but sometimes you got to take the smart shot. Yeah, uh, Larry Brown can't coach in today's NBA. He hated outside shots. Unless it was Reggie Miller taking shots for him from the outside. I mean, I just think that he wasn't a big fan of the point side. You know, I've, I've read that. My observation is that he wasn't. You know, my point is, is like, that's really what it's all about nowadays, man. It's like, it's all about the outside shot. You need shooters. That's why it's like, like Trey Young. Like, everybody wants the next Steph Curry. They get the hint that he's the next Steph Curry, then, hey, we're going to give him a shot. Just for the simple fact that we want somebody that can light it up like Steph. I mean, yeah, I think shooters are imperative in today's game because that's the direction it's trending toward. And that's where it's at. And good shooters, they're hard to find. You know, they just are. So it's like whenever you can snag one, whether it's, you know, high in the draft or still one late in the draft, you know, you definitely want to have it in your arsenal. But I think that some of the things that we did, for example, tried to get a late first rounder. We drafted him for his shooting. I think there was a guy we picked up in the second Somehow we made a lot of deals in the second round. I think it's a Milton. He has a shot May transitional to the NBA if he makes the NBA roster. I think that we, you know, once the draft moved along, we were looking for shooters. And it speaks to the trend 
that's going on in the NBA today. I think that, you know, teams need outside shooters, man. That's just where it's going. They need guys to knock down shots. Teams had to respect that. So I just think that you're right. I mean, it just, to me, I think as, as great as a shooter as Steph Curry is, I hate his shot selection. I hate it. I hate it. I hate the shot selection, but I mean, the guy, he drills more shots than he misses, but his shot selection to me is awful. But, hey, I can't argue with greatness. He's a great shooter. But, yeah, I think that team's always on the hunt for new shooters because I think you have a viable chance in today's NBA. got to have. Is there a matchup that you always wanted to see in the NBA Finals that we never got a chance to see? I know there's been so many different teams that you're thinking, what if this happened? What if that happened? Is there a particular matchup in the past you would have love to see you know that year when the magic went oh my god damn the magic made it to the finals i mean it was a great run that they had but i felt like the league everybody was really anticipating kobe versus lebron you know the, the puppet commercials all of that stuff i just think that is the one that, that comes to mind for me i would have liked to have seen that i think kobe has one of the greatest competitive spirits ever in the game I think LeBron, talent-wise, is better than Kobe Bryant. Has always been better than Kobe from a talent standpoint. But I think that would have been a great finals matchup. And it never really, I mean, it came close. I think that was probably the closest it came. was I think that was 2009, maybe. Might have been 2009. But that's the one that comes to mind. There are probably other ones. Like, when I'm asked that, that's the one I always wish we could have seen, Kobe versus LeBron. I don't care which uniform they were wearing. I just wanted to see that matchup in the finals. I will say the Clutch City Rockets against the Bulls. The biggest thing was the Bulls had a shot, even in their weakened state before they got Rodman. I feel like if they got past Orlando, they would have got past Indiana, and they would have played Houston. Whether they would have beaten the Rockets, who had just got Clyde, I, I don't know. But it would have been a very interesting, in the finals, Pippen and Jordan against Olajuwon and Drexler would have made a very interesting finals. Um, Yeah, I would have liked to have seen that, too. I would have been curious to see how they would have matched up against, how the Bulls, I mean, would have matched up against that Rockets team. So, listen, they're, they're great. Dynasty's greatness is solidified. But, man, I mean, I can't imagine how much higher, you know, their legacy would have ascended by beating the Rockets team because it would have been a fun matchup. And it would have been nice to see how the Bulls would have handled a dominant big man like a king. You know, they had success against Patrick Moore and guys like that. But I just think that a king was sort of on another level. He brought a different stamp. Not to take it away from Patrick Ewing, you know what I mean? But I just think that that would have posed a different challenge. I think the way the Rockets were built, it would have posed challenges for the Bulls. It would have been an interesting matchup. For me personally, I think somehow, some way, Michael would have found a way to win that series. But who knows? But yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. Like right next to uh, Kobe LeBron, that's that's another matchup I wish we could have seen. Now think about it. If you had a team with Olajuwon, Barkley, Drexler against those Bulls, with Rodman and Jordan and Pippen, that would have been a very exciting finals as well. Yeah. And I mean, there are so many matchups. I mean, man, if I could just sit here and reflect on that all day, I don't know, man. I mean, there's just so many that come to mind, but those are the two that stand out. It's Bulls, Rockets, a Kobe LeBron matchup. I feel like most of the good teams throughout the NBA, the truly good teams, now they're to the finals, with the exception of the Sacramento Kings. I Ladies think that's one reasons. of the teams that's never found their way there, right? I think. All the way. I'll tell you what, it, it was interesting to me, it was surprising when Dallas actually got there and won it against Miami in, in 2011. I mean, like, even Dallas. Like, I, I always thought that teams would have played it before the Mavericks. That's how I always felt. But, I mean, even they won a championship. So, I think that, to my mind, in my years of watching basketball, the only good teams that never even at least made it that far was probably Sacramento. I feel like the Jail Blazers, they were very close, too. They differentiate them from the early 90s Blazers. But, yeah, seeing those matchups maybe against the Sixers or against the Pistons, 
Pistons or maybe even against the Nets, maybe that would have made it a little more interesting, the contrastive yeah. styles and things like that. But yeah, the Kings, really the Kings and the Blazers. Yeah, the Blazers playoff series where they missed the free throws and then Ori hits that buzzer beater and send the Lakers to the finals. I feel like even with the cloud of the Tim Donaghy stuff going around, I feel like that was a team that yeah. probably should have aspired for more as well. Yeah, i tell you what. I mean, I think I would have been a... a I was fun watching the Blazers and the Pacers in 2000. I think that was a damn good series. But Paul has nobody to for themselves. I mean, they had control of the game, and that was the start of the Lakers' rise, really. I mean, like, imagine if the Lakers hadn't pulled that comeback off. Like, how much different things could have been for that Lakers from that point forward. You know what I mean? And I bet you there are still members of that Blazers team who still wonder about that and how and help um, change their fortune. It's just crazy, man. Like, when, when you blow leads, and mind you, uh, the Blazers Blazers were on the verge of making an impressive comeback themselves that year because they were down 3-1 in that series against the Lakers. And I thought it was done then. I pretty much stopped watching. And then, you know, they uh, came back, made it a game seven, and were getting ready to give them the ultimate collapse, kind of like what you saw Golden State do in, uh, was it, 2016? So, yeah, I think Portland had some good teams for the years. And they had their chances. And uh, that one in 2000, you're right. I mean, it was just, wow. That was one they had in hand, and I think they would have had a great chance of beating Indiana, and I think that would have been a good series. Not that the Lakers-Pacers series, yeah, was good. I thought there were some good moments, like the moments Kobe had to take over in a game late. I think that that expedited his growth at that time. I mean, there were some some memorable moments from that too, but yeah, I think Portland is another team that I think has some some golden opportunities at some point in time, especially during that Shaq Kobe era, and things just never panned out. In addition to the Furs, who are um, you know achieving their own breaks in their own. And you mentioned playing basketball starting in middle school. How did you find that? Mm -hmm. And what did you love about it? I think it was like rec stuff, Um, like Worcester County Rec League. I think I was doing like indoor soccer at the middle school. And then after indoor soccer in the morning, then basketball would start. And I kind of like dabbled in that. Um, And then one of my best friends, Kim Gordy, you know her, but that was her sport. So we had become very close friends and kind of, I got into it that way. Um, but I never felt really good at it. Even in high school, maybe by my junior, senior year, I finally kind of felt comfortable. But I mean, my freshman year, I I didn't feel like a basketball player. I felt like an athlete who was playing basketball. What do you feel was the biggest transition to feeling you were a basketball player? What did you feel like was the biggest improvement that you needed to make? I think it just comes with being comfortable on the court. Like, I think that when it's new to you, and I've seen this in my coaching, so I've really tried to pull in um, athletes and girls who have maybe never played before at all. And I can kind of coach them from that perspective of there really are a million things to learn in basketball, and it's a very quick game. So, you know, it's fundamentals, but it's it's there's a level of comfort that you have to find on the court that I think it took me some years to find where I wanted the ball. I, I felt comfortable running the offense or whatever. But I also learned early on that it's about a role. So you have to fulfill your role, whatever that is. So for me, initially, it was defensive and it was fast breaks. And that was kind of my job. And I knew and still know that I'm not a three-point shooter. But I learned that early on, too, is that, you know, if you have a role, you do that, then you build off of that and maybe some other things open up for you. What would you say your greatest offensive skill was? Jump shot? Was it post play? I know you mentioned the three-point shooting was not your forte. 
You know, I don't know offensively what I would say was my my strength. I think probably just driving the lane maybe was what it was. And I had an okay short jump shot. But, um, yeah, I think just taking it to the rack was fun. You mentioned the grind of a basketball season. How do you change practices up, especially as the season goes along? Uh, well, you know, I try and balance. I think there's a lot to be said for, for certain routines and expectations. Um but it's just trying to be creative. So once the season actually starts and we're playing game, you know, two games a week or whatever, then my practice is really always based around the things that I saw in the game before or the things that I'm seeing kind of consistently in the last few games. So we'll always do fundamentals every day. We'll work on skills and then we'll work on a certain aspect of the game depending on what's going on, uh, depending on what I'm seeing. So you can do that in creative ways. I mean, around around Christmas, you know, end of January or something, there's like kind of a wall where you're doing it more creatively with games and competitive stuff between the kids and the girls. And, and I get in there some too, so that lightens it up a little bit, you know. But, yeah, I just try and base it on what needs to be worked on. So it's not the same every day. The shooting drills are different, but we're still shooting. Layups or full-court layups can look a million different ways, but they're still sprinting and still doing layups. So it's just creativity. A lot of YouTube for me and a couple books I have. (laughs) Who are some of your coaching influences? I know that you were able to coach under Coach Gladding at Pocomoke, but who else did you watch the sidelines, boys or girls or male or female coaching that you watched Mm -hmm. and tried to emulate? You know, I think that um, I've taken something from every coach I've had, whether that was in travel sports or high school and whether and it could be that it worked or that it didn't work, that as a teenage girl, it worked for me to motivate me or it didn't. And so I've taken something from everybody. But the time that I got to spend with Gail and coaching under her and, and becoming a friend of hers is huge. I mean, her her work ethic and her coaching style are are things that I always respected even when I played against her in high school. I thought of her as a really great coach who got a lot out of her girls. And my style is not the same as hers, but there are definitely times that I kind of feel that influence and I, you know, a practice plan is important. You don't just show up. Pre-game talks and things like that are are similar. So our styles are different, but I think that she probably I can say without a doubt, have the largest influence on me as a coach. I know that there's this old saying, and I know it's applicable to not only football and basketball, but every sport. It's sometimes it's not about the X's and O's, but it's about the Jimmy's and Joe's. It's more about instead of being a strategist, it's about the people. What do you say is your greater strength? Is it being a strategist or is it being more of a a people person? A hundred percent the people person. I am learning daily and getting better and better at the X's and O's. My assistant coaches this year were Nadine Bishop, who I'm not sure if you're familiar, but she's been around for for a long time um, in Snow Hill area coaching. And uh, Todd Lantman is the athletic director, and he stepped up because we had – I had about seven to ten girls at the end of my first year, which was last season or whatever. And uh, this year I had over 20 come out to play. So it was amazing to see that many girls, but I suddenly realized – we needed a JV program. Um, 
and the third coach. So he stepped in. Long story short, the two of them were definitely my X's and O's people. They were like, let's try this offense. This is what this will look like. This this is how this will work. So that initial stage is wonderful to have for me. I'm good at fixing it and adjusting and making adjustments, you know, defensively or, or even offensively. But the initial sort of drawing it up stuff is just not my strength at this time. So, you know, I'll keep working at it. But when the opportunity came to coach at your alma mater, what was that like? And then were there any hesitation or reluctance to do it at all? No. So I had hoped to actually take over the program at Pokemon when Gail retired and wasn't given that opportunity. So I then was also transitioning to a different job at the technical high school from Pocomoke and was then offered the position of coaching at Snow Hill. And I didn't hesitate one second. I mean, I, I wanted to coach basketball and I was given that opportunity. And then the idea of doing it at Snow Hill was, was just kind of icing on the cake, but came with a little extra pressure too. you know, the community and building relationships with the community. And like I said earlier, our, our classmates are now parents and that can work two ways. It can be really good, and it could also kind of backfire a little bit. It was good, though, this year. I had a good time. I mean, it was there was no problem. But the nice part about taking over a program that has not won a game in, in two years is that if you believe in yourself and you make a plan and you stick to that, then there's nowhere to go but up. And that first year, I had a really great group of girls who really truly did not know basketball but bought into the idea of, coming every day to practice and getting better and not looking at the scoreboard during a game, but practicing a specific skill in the middle of that game. And I couldn't have asked for a better group to sort of start that foundation for me at Snow Hill. And being able to mold players into what you want to make them into, and I think is much easier than just trying to fit a square peg in a round hole to use a little cliche. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. worked out well winning your first regional title and the program's first regional title in almost 30 years. What was that feeling like? And when did you know that things were starting to move that direction? It was crazy. I know just at the, you know, with like a minute or so left, it kind of hits you that you go like, I think we might be able to relax now. We might actually have this game. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So I remember just having my hands on my head and going like, oh my God. Oh my God. And then, you know, the buzzer sounds and everybody runs and it's a beautiful, magical moment. We lost our last regular season game to Pocomoke by almost 20. And the last few games of the season, I wasn't pleased with the way we'd been playing. I felt like we weren't getting better as a team. I felt like individually girls were kind of stagnant, not really getting better. So we had a coaches meeting and I basically said that I wanted to go back. I think that we had focused too much on game play and game situations and gone away from skills or waited a little too heavily on the, on the game aspect. Um, so in that week leading up to playoffs where we actually played Pokemon in the first round, we went back to basics. We did a lot of skills and then we did a little bit of offense and we did a lot of skills and we did a little bit of defense. And that whole week was planned out to work against Pokemon and what they had and the types of defense we had to play and it felt good so I kind of felt like going into the postseason that things 
were looking up. I thought I, I felt good about going into that game, and then we ended up beating them by, I think, almost 20. I think it was like a 30-some point difference between the last game of the season and then this playoff game. And because the girls bought into that, I think it just kind of catapulted us forward. And then the next game was Washington High, who that was the only 1A school that we had um, lost both games in the regular season. And, again, it was just we practiced with purpose, and I think that that's what made that difference. But every game was like a, oh, my gosh, I can't believe, you know, not that you can't believe it, but it's just like a, this might happen, this might happen. And then we went to North Dorchester, and they had a girl that scored her 2,000th point against us. That game was too close for comfort, but then at the end it was – and they threw some stuff on us. They did a little bit of a box and one that we hadn't seen, and they played a little bit of a man that we hadn't really seen much of. So it took some adjustments at halftime. But I think the girls, again, like I talked a little bit about that first year and that foundation of our motto was to trust the process. And the girls saw that that kind of paid off this year. And and then it was a then it was more of a mental thing for them. So we had to shift gears between you know, getting blown out by 20 and 30 against Parkside or Bennett or Decatur and then being competitive and playing to win against 1A schools. And that's a tough shift to make for everybody, but especially competitive teenagers. But I think they did that for the most part. There were a couple of games where we, we hung our heads a little bit about the score, but um, that's the building process. So next year we'll be more competitive with those schools. Um and hope to be on top of the 1A schools for sure. You know, I was a uh, disillusioned youth. I generously give myself five foot six, and uh, <laughs> I would like to play basketball. You know, no, first, uh, this is a lead into other things, I guess, because, you know, I grew up during the Jordan years. So, you know, we had a basketball goal in our backyard, so everybody, you know, wanted to be like Michael Jordan, get back there, me and my brother and my sister, we out there hooping. So you had this vision, you know, you being in the NBA or you playing basketball. And I think I've always had a good imagination and that I let my imagination go away with that one. So, you know, I, I always wanted to play basketball on the team. My first love, though, was football. And I never played organized football, but I, I was thinking about going to uh, try out for the, uh, my team when I was in junior high school. But the week before the tryouts, I had an epidectomy. Mm-hmm. So that kind of ruined my whole football career. I never thought about it again. But, you know, as all the kids growing up you know, in, in high school, you think about playing basketball. So I tried for the basketball team. Um, you know, playing street ball and playing organized basketball are two different things. You know, I, I thought it was pretty good at street ball. Organized basketball is just it's another beast. And I played my sophomore and junior years and for JV and then for varsity. When I was at JV, my high scoring game, I scored 32 points. I got 10 rebounds and I got nine steals. And I remember the girl that was holding the stats, she was telling me, Matt, Matt, get another steal. You get a trouble number. Get another steal. I wouldn't even think, I wouldn't even focus on that. I was just in the zone, if you could believe that. But um, it was an experience. It really kind of showed me, man, it's no matter how much, I guess, confident in your own skills, there's always somebody better. And in my case, there were tons of kids that were better and um, taller, too. So, <laughs> you know, it was a good experience to go through, but I wish I would have focused on other things in high school. Like, I could have been the only person on the golf team in my high school because the gym teacher wanted to start a golf team. I, I took golf lessons when I was in um, 
junior high. I could have been, you know, pretty good at golf, but I wouldn't play basketball. But, you know, no regrets, but if I had to do over again, I'd, I'd do it differently. Hey, so you pulled an ice cube and almost messed around and got a triple-double. Almost. <laughs> oh, yeah, indeed. indeed. I don't know if my mother still has it. I Washington Post from uh, 1999 during our playoff run. I scored, I think I had six points in a varsity game. We won our first playoff game. And then we went to the school out in the boondocks, and they kicked our butt in the play. I mean, they just, uh, it was terrible. And I said, I didn't like the kid. Our star player was a guy named Kevin Bess. Oh, he thought he was hot stuff. Thought he was the man. If you think of the prototypical jock, he looks down on everybody. Thought he was the man. Thought he was going to get a scholarship to college. Uh-uh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh wow! Mm. This dude was maybe five foot ten. He could shoot, but he had no left hand. None, no left hand at all. So his, this is our star player. So this team, they realized this guy he can't go left. So they start double teaming and forcing them left. It was so disappointing. But I was happy because I didn't like it. He's a bully, and I think he just got out of prison, or well, he might be still in prison. I saw one of his prison pictures on Facebook. So I'm, I'm really happy how that turned out. Being in D.C., this is one thing you've told me. You had the opportunity to uh, interact with Kevin Durant a long, long, long time ago before he became yeah. KD. Yes, I was Kevin Durant's, and I think my brother was just for one year, too. But for two years, I was Kevin Durant's camp counselor at Sea uh, Pleasant Summer Camp. I think I was 16 or 17, and he was like 11 and 12. And... Um, he was, of course, taller than me at that time. I'm not a tall man, but he was he was taller than me. And he was a good kid. I mean, he was all about basketball. But you know, he had a group of kids, uh, friends around him, all of them played AAU basketball. They all thought they were going to make it to the NBA, but he was just focused on basketball. And I guess coming from that, that area, he was really focused on something to help he and his mother and his brother to get out of that uh, those tough economic conditions, so... Did you see his potential as a, an NBA star? Oh, yeah, because basketball was my thing back then. Again, I wasn't a tall person, but I, I loved playing basketball. And you knew who had it and who he didn't. This kid was at 11 or 12. He was about 5 foot 8, maybe 5 foot 9. And he was just dominating everybody. Older kids, younger kids. I mean, he was doing everything. There was something about him that, uh, that you knew he was going to make it. And and then when you see him get drafted by the Sonics and then have the success in Oklahoma City, when all that talk came out, him possibly maybe coming back to D.C., what were your thoughts on that? Were you hoping that it would happen? I, I was hoping he would come back here. And I understand why he didn't come to the Wizards. But I must admit, I was disappointed with his choice to go to the Warriors. I think that's not what I... I don't think Michael Jordan would go into the Warriors, you know. You're the best player in the game. Why are you going to a team that knocked you out of the playoffs the previous year? That disappointed me. But I know he's still um, involved in the PG County area. So, I mean, maybe he, he realized that he didn't have to physically be here to make a difference here, too. To close out the basketball thing, though, mm-hmm. the summer league we played, I've been around a bunch of, uh, maybe not a bunch, but a couple NBA players. Uh, we played against, and for summer league, some kids would show up, some kids wouldn't. So the game that we played, I was the tallest kid on the team. So I had to play center. Now, who did we end up playing? Six foot nine, Damar Johnson. Do you remember Damar Johnson? He played for the he Hawks, went, right? 
He played for the Hawks for a few years, then he got hurt in the car accident. Mm. He was six foot six back then. So I'm having to check him. <laughs> he had to have 70 points. <laughs> he had to have. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know if you remember Chris McCray from College Park. He played one year at College Park, but then he failed out of College Park. This is 2001, 2002. He went to Fairmont Heights. He went to my high school. Wow. Um, and it's a documentary that's getting ready to come out about PG County. What's it called? Uh, the Land of Basketball or something like that. Because PG County is a, pretty much a hotbed of you know NBA star people coming in for basketball and also football too. Because look at now uh, the riskiest last two top draft picks, Chase Young and Haskins, PG County. You know, yeah. so that's why I love this area. PG County is an interesting place. It's a very interesting place. Before we go and talk about your time at Stephen Decatur, that is, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about UMES, what your expectations were heading into this season, and all in all, what led to your decision to choose UMES? To answer your first question, going into the season, we had lost a lot of seniors last year. Some seniors that uh, led our team, we were coming off of a our best MEAC performance that as long as I've been there and the most wins that our coach, I think, has uh, witnessed. So it was going to be uh, not a tough turnaround, but it was going to be a work in progress to just see how we would come back after such a great season that we had. So me personally, I was coming in just trying to be the best person, best leader I could be, and best teammate I could be to help the younger people, that the freshmen, the underclassmen, so they could develop and we could keep this program running the way it was uh, left off by our seniors. And then to answer your second question, leaving my uh, high school career, going to a Division One program, um, I was a walk-on, earned the academic scholarship. I knew I could play at that level, but just being able to have that experience and just actually doing it day in and day out, going to practices day in and day out, was a blessing, a blessing in disguise. I met some amazing people some amazing experiences, and I just had fun while I was doing it, um, playing the game that I love. I've been playing since I was four years old. So it was just a dream come true to just play the highest level of college basketball, and I must say I enjoyed every minute of it. To you, what do you feel was the biggest draw of being a walk-on? What do you feel like you were able to do to impress Coach Batchelor and his staff? Well, he always told me he knew that I could put the ball in the basket, and that's one thing that he wanted me to do there. He just wanted me to be myself, and he talked about my characteristics that I had as a player and had as a person, and he wanted me to display that in the program to just show and become the leader that I did become. Did you feel as being a walk-on that that led to a bit of a challenge that there might have been a chance that you might not have made the team, and what was the competition like for for the walk-ons? I never thought I wasn't going to make a team. Um, When I had the meeting with them, it was during my senior year, a couple weeks before I graduated, and we talked, and he just told me, basically, I was on the team. It was just the fact of how much time I was going to play and if I was going to play or not, and I felt like I worked really hard, and that freshman year, I actually earned Rookie of the Year on my team, so everything worked out, and I was just blessed to have the opportunity. When it came to taking the court, especially as a freshman at UMES, what would you say was maybe the sort of biggest challenge you had going from high school to the college level? The biggest challenge I had, um, just basically adjusting, realizing I'm not going to be, I guess, that star on the team anymore. 
And it wasn't a big adjustment at all. It was just adjusting to what I will become. I had some great teammates helping me adjust from, I guess, the lower shore to the faster me at gameplay. The game speed changed dramatically. It was a lot of up and down. Everyone's athletic. Everyone basically has the same skill set. So I was just basically going around a group of girls that basically were like me, but on their team. So it was a good adjustment. What is your most memorable game as a UMES basketball player? What stood out and how did it remain in your memory? My most memorable game, uh, I will say team-wise, my most memorable game was my first homecoming game. Just seeing just everyone coming back and just basically celebrating us and just celebrating everyone just being back on the alumni, being back on campus and just just seeing how many people were there, just the atmosphere was amazing. Um, it was just an experience within itself. So that was, and then leading on to that, every homecoming game, I was used to it. But you can never get used to it because of just how the the experience it was. And then my most memorable game, personally, myself, would probably have to be, I have two. It's a game we actually lost and a game we won. And they both were um, against Morgan. Uh, Kobe Bryant was my idol, and the day after he passed away, we played Morgan, and I started off the game really bad, just, like, really in my head, and then the fourth quarter, we were down, and I just kind of just locked in, like, a, like, mama mentality locked in, and just scored, like, eight points back to back to back to back, and it was just, I was out there, but, like, my mind was just everywhere else, because I had just lost my idol. We ended up losing, but me personally, I felt like that was one of my best games. And then uh, we played Morgan at Morgan. We ended up winning that game. It was pretty tough. We were losing, and it was like back and forth, back and forth, and we had pulled away. And I had a pretty good game there as well. So that was three of my most memorable games and moments there. Getting back to homecoming, I know that's something, and being being UMS alum as well, we always know that mm -hmm. going – Looking around the campus during homecoming week and during those homecoming games, it feels so different than it normally would on a, on a daily basis. Right. To you, how energetic is that crowd when it comes to homecoming time? And, and does it just take you to another level? The energy is amazing. Uh, bleachers are pulled out on both sides and then on each end of the baselines. And everyone's there is packed with just amazing fans and amazing contributors and just rooting on us. And we've been, I've been blessed to win three, three out of four of my homecoming games there. So it's been pretty, pretty amazing atmospheres there. And I loved every minute of it. I remember covering a game there. I think it was probably... Uh, maybe 2012 or so. But I remember mm -hmm. at one point, UMES was struggling. I don't even remember who they were playing. All I remember, they were wearing gray Maryland State jerseys. And right. all of a sudden, you would start hearing the crowd singing. It was a lot of older ladies started singing. Um, I don't know what song it was, but all of a sudden, they started singing, and UMES just started surging and started uh, mm -hmm. catching fire. And it was just such a crazy thing because I think they pulled out that game. And right. I feel like when you have... I wouldn't want to say like the ghost of UMES, but more like UMES uh, right. past there. It sort right. of just bonds everybody and everybody just sort of gets in the spirit of it. Yes. It's basically like you're, you're not really playing for yourself, but you're just playing for everyone that's there. Just basically thanking them for everything they've done for our university, whether they made contributions or whether they just come to support. So it's basically just thanking them for 
everything they do and everything they continue to do for the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Also, you mentioned Kobe Bryant a little bit. Uh, yes. I know that had to be huge, 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 devastating news when you heard about it. How did he get you into basketball? For sure. Um, four-year-old little girl. Uh, my dad's a big-time Lakers fan, and just that's basically how we really honestly bond through sports. And he's sitting there looking at uh, Lakers games, and I'm sitting there looking at Lakers games with them, and then one particular person stands out, and it's Kobe Bryant. And even though I'm a woman, it's just you just want to be like him. You see what he does. You see how hard he works. And you just want to mimic everything he does. And growing up, that has been someone I had idolized because it's just the mentality he has, just the work ethic. He never wants to lose. He's just going to give you 110% every time he steps on the court. And that's what I wanted to do every time I stepped on the court, whether it was practicing, work ethic by myself, or whether it was on a game. And then just challenging his teammates. I feel like I've done that in the past, just challenging my teammates just to get them to be the best that they can be because that's just what he did. And I wanted to be like him. I wanted to do everything like him. So he meant everything to me. And just losing him hurt me because, I mean, it's my last year and it's just like, it's like full circle. You started with them and then he passed away and it's like, wow, she just finished your career. And I always feel like, especially we're having this whole discussion between who's the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan, LeBron. Do you feel that Kobe gets lost right. in that discussion? For sure. Uh, anyone can ask me, and everyone knows my answer. Kobe Bryant is my GOAT. No LeBron, no MJ. Kobe Bryant is my GOAT. And I'm still a big-time Lakers fan to this day. So I'm glad to have LeBron on my team. No matter how many more rings he wins, Kobe Bryant will always and forever be my GOAT. So it's just that. That's how passionate I am about him. And it's crazy. And I think about that, the, the, the GOAT list, there's a whole bunch of people, not even just Jordan and LeBron, that are in there. And I right. mean, in that discussion, there's Wilt Chamberlain, there's Bill Russell, because honestly, when you have 11 rings, that right. right there gives you a reason to say that, even though some people will say, well, he was like the Ben Wallace of his era, except he could actually score. Right. But and then you look at Kareem, I, and I've been on that debate. I'm like, Kareem, honestly, was probably the better college basketball player than all all of them. And all of them, yeah. Uh, yeah. Had a rule named for him that basically prevented you couldn't dunk. You couldn't even dunk in the NCAA. He only did right. that in three years, couldn't play as a freshman. And then um, I know everybody will say, play with a lot of all-stars. Look what he did without Magic. He still won a ring without Magic, one with Oscar Robertson. But, I mean, he's one of those guys in the debate as well. And I know that's something that is divided maybe along age lines. And I'm only 37. And I had to look back and watch some of Kareem's stuff because I know I grew up watching Jordan. And I was able to watch right. LeBron and Kobe. And that's why I think that there's a whole bunch of other guys. I mean, and everybody can say Wilt too, because the man averaged 50 points one season, scored hundred in a game and no right. one will ever do that. It doesn't matter how lax the, the <laughs> rules are offensively. I don't even think Harden will ever sniff 70 uh, in my mind. So, I mean, I think right now there's a whole bunch of people that you can use to debate. And I know, I think sometimes it falls along generational lines or just sort of, I guess the amount of exposure people have had to those players. Right. Have you been able to watch The Last Dance so far? Yes, I did. Last Sunday, I did watch the first few episodes, and 
it's kind of sucks because you have to wait a week just to get the next two. So I'm definitely going to be tuned in. Yeah, it's crazy. I think this is all coming up at a time, especially like you said, with Kobe's death and of course LeBron slowly making a charge at Kareem's scoring title and all of a sudden interesting that Michael Jordan is sort of back into uh, public thought right now. Right. Moving back to your time playing at Stephen Decatur, what were expectations, especially going in as a freshman on the varsity? Um, I really didn't have high expectations. I knew what I was capable of, but I really didn't have like, oh, I want to do this. I want to do that until about my sophomore year. So um, we didn't really have like, you know, a lot of schools around here uh, have like middle school teams. The only thing I was able to do was play AAU basketball. So I... I was excited to go to high school because, like I said, we didn't really have the middle school teams. But just going in my freshman year, um, I just wanted to kind of just make a name for myself. Like I said, I knew what I was capable of, but I didn't really have high expectations. And then I just kept going on with my career and it just went on from there. What's your most memorable highlight at Decatur? I mean, I know you could probably split it up over all four years, but were right. there any particular moments that stood out to you? Maybe, maybe one each year? Um... Okay, uh, my freshman year, I was able to make the, I don't, my myself and my dad was having this discussion. I don't know if I made first team or second team. I think it was second team my freshman year. And then my sophomore year, what stood out to me was I was a base high player of the year. So that was a big jump from either if I was second team to base high player of the year. That was one of my best seasons. And then my junior year, I got my 1,000 points. And, yeah, I got my 1,000 points. In my senior year, uh, I got the all-time leading record there for on the women's side, and, and I also got 2,000 points. And then team-wise, we were able to win the uh, Bayside Championship my last two years there. So it was some great times at Decatur, and I will always cherish those moments there as well. That seems like a huge offensive jump, especially going from the 1,000 to 2,000 so quickly. What yes. could you contribute to that? And uh, what did you feel like you were able to do from from that jump from 1,000 points to 2,000 points so well? Um, I just locked in. Um, my dad always picked on me because I kept telling him I don't think I was going to be able to do it. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't believe in myself, but he was like, you're going to be able to do it. And I actually got it, the Bayside title game, my senior year. So I still had a couple more games left after that. We had playoffs, and we actually played three games into the playoffs. So I finished with 2,081. So I kind of surpassed it with some more points to go on top of that. But I didn't realize I was going to be able to get 2,000 points after only getting my 1,000 points my junior year. But it happened. So I'm grateful for that. I know some people, it all depends, end up keeping track of their stats. Did you sort of consciously keep track of where you were at pace-wise or – no, I didn't. I, that's what I said. Like, my dad kept telling me that I was going to be able to get it. Um, the managers normally kept tracking my points. The manager would come to me sometimes and be like, um, you had so-and-so, or you did this tonight, or you are this many points away from getting your 1,000, or just you're this many points away from getting your getting the all-time leading record, uh, all-time scoring record. So it was always like kind of in the back of my head because I was constantly, constantly being reminded of it. But all I wanted to do was honestly just help my team win and kind of hang bangers, banners at Decatur because that's honestly what I wanted to do there. How would you best describe yourself as a basketball player if you were doing a scouting report of yourself? Hmm. 
Um, I'm someone who can attack the basket, find her teammates, while also being able to hit the open jump shot, whether it's three or mid-range. So I would say all around um, this past year at uh, UMES, I definitely picked up my uh, defensive side of basketball, of basketball, and I was able to do better than what I was able to do previous years. But if I would bring myself, that's what I would say. Someone who can attack and finish, someone who's powerful and strong, and can hit the, who can find her teammate and hit the open jump shot. How tall are you at the moment? I know that everybody keeps growing. <laughs> so my bio, it says I'm 5'5", five five, but according to the doctors, I'm 5'3". Right on the cusp of 5'4". It's pretty interesting. It's just sort of that huge difference. But to you, do you feel like, especially you mentioned be able to attack the basket and be able to mm-hmm. hit your jump shots. Do you feel something like the mid-range shot is starting to disappear in basketball? I know a lot of people... The, the change in the game, it's either becoming three-pointers, bombs away, or, right. uh, you know. Or dunk, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think the mid-range is a lost art. Like I said, Kobe is my idol, and he was a master at mid-range, mid-range fadeaway, mid-range. Just that was what he basically focused on. And then you got guys coming in like Steph Curry and then Klay Thompson. So they changed the game forever where everyone wants to just shoot threes, shoot threes, shoot threes, and – and that seems to be what the NBA has transi- transitioned to. So I definitely think the mid-range is a lost art. Then you have guys like Kawhi Leonard, who who's also a mid-range killer. So it's some guys that keep it in their arsenal, but definitely the game has definitely transitioned to a three-point league. It's weird, as we talked about Kareem a little earlier, it's weird. I don't think you see a lot of people mm-hmm. do hook shots anymore either. And I feel like that's something right. that takes a lot of work to practice. Mm-hmm. Again, looking at your run playing at UMES, this run heading into it, you guys were starting to catch fire heading into the MEAC tournament and were on a great run until the unfortunate outbreak of COVID-19 started shutting down all the sports uh, nationwide. Going into the MEAC tournament, what was the mindset of the team and uh, how did you guys continue to stay so hot? It was crazy because we started the season horrible. We started the season off so bad, uh, I don't even know what our losing streak was. And then, like I said, that Morgan game, everything just clicked. And we were just, since then, we were just winning, winning, winning. And we just started to find our stride. And then we were so hot going into the tournament that we were like, we can honestly do this. So things were lining up. We won. And then we knocked off the number one team in the MEAC, which was Bethune Cookman, who had knocked us off two times in the previous years. And... So we played that Tuesday, we played that Wednesday, we were off that Thursday, which was when everything kind of shut down. So we were going to play that Friday. So that Thursday, we were watching our potential matchup, which was between North Carolina A&T and North Carolina Central. So Central had actually ended up beating North Carolina A&T, and A&T was the higher seed. So this was like, this can honestly be our year. So we were kind of pumped about that, and then... I started getting notifications that other conferences had uh, canceled their tournament. And I was like, it's only a matter of time before MEAC cancels their tournament. So it was like a roller coaster of emotions because we were just so excited of the week we had just had. And then the last couple of games we had just had, we were just so excited and just so hot, just ready to make history at University of Maryland Eastern Shore because no one has won a MEAC championship there. And then for COVID 19 to hit, it was just like, wow. 
what could have been. So that's all you can honestly think of now. We're still in group chats talking about, like, we could have a MEAC championship right now or, like, a couple of days ago, uh, this is supposed to be our championship game or it was just um, – it's just like I said, it's a roller coaster of emotions. You're just kind of just going with the flow and riding this thing out. Was there complete confidence that you guys could win it all? Oh, for sure. We, like I said, we still talk about that now. Um, if, like I said, uh, we had we we were hot. We were we had. I don't know what our winning streak was at the point. Maybe five or six games, but we everything was clicking like the. We were talking on defense. It was just the connection between us. The bond between us was getting stronger and stronger, and it was honestly hitting at the right time because you don't want to peak too early, and we were just peaking at the right time at the end during the tournament. So, for a fact, I think we would have won a MIA championship. Yeah, looking at your stats, you guys had won one, two, three, four, five in a row. Yes, yeah, five games against, in a row. against Bethune-Cookman. And it all started with a 68-53 uh, to 53 win against Delaware State. How do you best describe the competition level in the MEAC? I know it's easy for people to think, oh, it's the MEAC. It's not one of the elite mm-hmm. conferences. But how would you best describe the play and the competition level that goes on in the MEAC conference? Uh, I would say the MEAC is not the tallest for sure. But I would honestly say the MEAC is one of the most athletic conferences in in the world it's like straight dogs like the it's like the people who got overlooked so they go to like the MEAC schools and everyone's hungry to like prove themselves because they feel like where they are they should be I guess at like a higher school or a better school so everyone's just like head hunting each other just just to prove themselves that we are who we know we can be and I think the MEAC conference like I said is one of the most athletic conferences in the league and uh, one of the most athletic conferences in the world. I had always heard, and I and I just think about the men's side that the MEAC is considered more of a guards league. Is is that true, especially yes. on the women's side? Yes, because everyone like you rarely see like a six three, a six two uh, post. You have like forts, uh, power forts, or like five seven, five eight. Where if you go to like a power five school, a five eight player is like a a guard. Or you might have a six-foot guard. So it's like, it definitely is more guard-heavy. But like I said, we have some some guards. I feel like you have to have a lot of heart. You can't be soft in the MEAC because they're going to chump you off for sure. So you got to have a lot of heart. You have to have a lot of grit. And you just got to be ready to work day in and day out. Who was the toughest player you faced in high school? And who was the toughest player you faced in college? Ooh, that's a really good question. Okay, so the toughest player I faced in high school, I wouldn't even say it was basically a player, but the team I liked facing the most would have to be Mardella, just because of how stacked they were my last three years and just how dominant they were. Um, I just always loved playing them. It was always, like I said, it was always the crowd was always into it. I remember my sophomore year, I think that's when that team had formed. I think they were undefeated, and we had beat them, and um, our fans had, like, brushed the court. So that was that's one of my most memorable games at Decatur as well. And then I would say the toughest player I had to go against in college, it would actually have to be one of my teammates. You know, you go against them every day in practice, 
and it would have to be a girl named like Regine Martin. She was about my height, and she was a straight dog, like giving a hundred and ten percent on offense, defense, nonstop motor. So going against her every day definitely made me better. I know that, especially covering you guys in high school, the best way to, I guess, compare Mardella was like a LeBron joining Miami. <laughs> but right, yeah. If Mardella were the Heat, what team would you compare Pokemon to then? If Mardella was the Heat. Pokemon was under us, so we would have to be higher than Pokemon. So Pokemon would definitely would have to be I would have to say the San Antonio first. They had a great coach, rest in peace, Miss Gladys. And then they had some great pieces around this. They had a dominant player, so I call it Baby Shack. Danija Christian would be like the Tim Duncan. So, and then they had great pieces surrounding them. So it was basically like a system. That's like a good comparison to me. And then you didn't really ask us, but I'm going to throw ask, us in there anyway. I was about to ask. I wasn't sure <laughs> if you guys are going to say like the Celtics or the, the KG Celtics or... I would have to say the Lakers, 2010 Lakers. I had a lot of players on my team who didn't really play basketball. They were lacrosse players. They were other sport athletes. So when you look at the 2010 Lakers, you have Kobe and then you have Powell, but then you have a lot of a lot of guys who do the dirty work and you have like a Derek Fisher, you have like a Lamar Odom, where it's like those guys mean just as much as the main guys. So I would compare us to... The Lakers, I would compare them to the Spurs, and like you said, uh, Mardella would be like the Heat or someone. Who was your Ron Artest on your team? Our Ron Artest. Allie Beck, for sure. You could throw her on anyone, and she's going to DM up. She might not talk as much trash, but she's going to be in your face all game, for sure. Was there a huge transition conditioning-wise, especially going from 8-minute quarters to 10-minute quarters in the college level? Oh, yeah, for sure. My freshman year was actually the first year they actually went to quarters in women's college basketball. They uh, had halves at first. So it was a transition for a lot of, not just myself, but for my coach as well, just how he manages the game and when the call time out, say if someone's had foul trouble. So it was a big adjustment for myself, not only myself, but me and my team as well. Any thoughts of maybe coaching rec ball, coaching high school ball <laughs> at all in the future? That's that is another great question because I was literally used to talking to my dad about that last night. Um, I don't see myself doing that anytime soon, but of course I'm gonna miss the game and I'm gonna wanna get back to being around it on a daily basis. So it could possibly happen whether it's coaching or whether it's training. Um, I can see myself being around there for sure or doing something around those lines. To you, what do you hope that your legacy on the court will be people will best remember you for uh high school would definitely have to be for them to remember me by uh my character on and off the court for sure and some one of the best basketball players on the women's and men's side to actually walk those halls as a communicator um i take that honor like very seriously because so many people have told me that um whether it's my former principal mrs zimmer who tells me how he's proud of me and how he's just commends the type of character I am and the type of leader I am. And just, like I said, he's just very proud of me. And then I guess on the college side, we'll just have to be just the person that I've developed from coming in to being a young, a young lady to being one of the players that the younger players looked up to and just being that leader and transitioning into that leader. I always was told that I'm, 
fit to be in a leader position. So that's always a great compliment to have. And I, when it's all said and done, I want people to remember me by that. It's just how I stand out and how much of a leader I am. In addition to doing the news, you also coached a little bit of basketball, assistant coach at Parkside High School, assistant coach at your alma mater, Wicomico High School. What was that experience like, and how did you get interested in coaching? Well, uh, Earl, I actually started coaching at Y High as an assistant to Butch Waller back in 1986, 87. Um, because of, I mean, my love of basketball, I, I you know, I love Y High, always wanted to get back, so I became the JV coach for a couple of years, 86, 87, 88, I think it was, and, you know, just loved helping out the youth, wanted them to experience Y High basketball like I did, or just experience basketball in general, because I love the sport, and uh, wanted to get back, because I thought that through my experiences, I could also help out, you know, upcoming youth who wanted to learn the game, play the game the right way, and uh, I just thought that by coaching, I'd be able to do that. So um, after those three years back in the 80s of coaching, obviously I had my you know career, I had my family and all that. But then my son uh, entered high school, and when he entered high school, I wanted to be able to see all of his games. And I couldn't do that um, at working in television with my late nights. So I actually took a job down at UMES, a day job down at UMES, so that I could be with my son during his high school career. So uh, it was great to be able to with, be with him every day, you know, working on his game, um, being there coaching him. I'm sure there were days where he was like, Dad, leave me alone, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I know when I was coming up, my dad would give me advice. And you know how it is with fathers and sons. They, they don't think we know anything as a, as a father. So they'll listen to somebody else before us. But uh, it was great coaching him. I think he enjoyed it. Um, I coached AAU. I actually started the Delmarva Basketball Academy. Um, and we had uh, close to 100 student athletes from across the Eastern Shore. And one of our biggest, most famous alum was uh, DeMonte Dodd out of Queen Anne's High School. Um, he was a part of our program. We had um, um, so many great players that played for us in our Delmarva Basketball Academy. And we would go out every summer. And we had, our team was called the Delmarva Lakers, and we would play all across the shore in different tournaments and won so many tournaments. I was really proud of that. Um, I did that for five years. When my son graduated, that was the last year that uh, I coached uh, youth basketball and also coached, of course, um, helping Dave Byer out at Parkside and uh, Coach Waller at High. But it was just a great experience for me to be there and, and uh, you know, help out my son um, as he played high school basketball. He actually, when he went to YI, transferred to YI, he actually got a chance, and you remember the story, because you did the story, he got a chance to uh, wear my number 42 that I had in high school. When I think of you, I think a very laid-back personality. So seeing you really fired up on the sidelines as a basketball coach, it's such a stark <laughs> contrast in what I normally think. Right, right. And it, that's, the, that's the tale of two Paul Butler. When I'm coaching basketball, I mean, I am, you know, I'm yelling, but I'm also laid-back at times. But I'm really into it because I want the kids to be the best they can be. Look, we're not going to win every game, but I just want them to put the best effort because I know when I played high school, if I had just done a little bit more, if I had just pushed a little bit more, 
who knows what could have happened. So I don't want high school students to say after the high school years, man, I wish I had done this or I wish I had done that. I want to push them to be the they could be. So I was a little bit more animated on the sidelines than I am on the, the TV set for sure. When you coach with Coach Waller and coach with Coach Byer, how did the game of basketball differ from when you played? Um, I would say from top to bottom. In my opinion, from top to bottom, as far as the roster goes, when I played, I think the guys were a little bit more skilled top to bottom than they are today. Now, athletically, the kids today are probably, you know, better because they can jump out of the gym, you know, those type of things. But when it comes to just the fundamentals, um, they aren't there the way they should be at the high school level as it was when I was playing. Because I know, you know, we all went to basketball camps every summer. We worked on our games all year round. Um, and now kids have more distractions. Um, a lot of them play the games NBA 2K. You know, you heard, you know, you know about that. They'd rather stay inside and play on the games than be outside working on their game. And I think that's the biggest difference because we would have just basic drills for kids um, during practice and a lot of them couldn't get the basic drills down just because of, of fundamentals they weren't where they should be so I, I think that was the biggest thing and the other thing is attitude too because now a lot of parents have uh, told their kids that they are all world that they are this they're that because of us a lot of it has to do with AAU and a lot of kids feel like they don't have to listen to the coach um, they, and, and they have their parents to back them up. Their parents will say, you know, parents will go in and argue with the coach um, instead of saying, listen, you need to listen to what the coach is telling you. Uh, so I think we have too many coaches now, um, and, and I know some people might not agree, but I think we have too many coaches, and those include the parents, during games. Now, it's nothing wrong with coaching your son after the game, you know, before the game, when you're with them. But when they're on the court, let the coach, you know, do his job. You were a Division One basketball player at the University of Maryland under Brenda Freeze. Correct. I was. Um, I was part of the transition. Um, Chris Weller was my coach my first three years, and then Brenda was my coach my senior year, and I still keep in contact with her to this day. How did you get interested in playing basketball, and was that the only sport you played growing up? I got into basketball. Probably just from, I know there was a, a kid that lived across the street from me who had a hoop in his yard, and we started off playing kickball, and then we're just like, hey, we got this hoop here, let's let's play. Um, and then, you know, I'm 5'9", I've always been, you know, fairly tall, so I think that just came into play, but I just got good at it, you know, um, I just got really good at it, and then... Um, you know, growing up, I did play soccer. I tried softball for a little bit, but basketball is the sport that really, really stuck. Now, were you uh, a center, a power forward at the time, or did you always play guard? Or I actually, all through growing up, uh, up until college, I played in the post. So I was a four-five, and then once you get to you know Division One basketball, five-nine isn't really tall. Like some of your most of your guards are are five nine so then that's when I transitioned out to playing more of like a wing player at the University of Maryland but before that I was I was all post moves um and just you know learned to really just work hard down low did you feel like you had to work on your shot especially making the transition from post to being in a wing oh absolutely I think that was the, the biggest challenge was that now is you know being asked to shoot three pointers and long distance shots 
Um, and then, you know, it's at that level, it's competitive. So it's one of those things where, you know, you're competing with players on your team because there's only, I think, maybe 10 or 11 slots on our basketball team, but you're competing with players on your team who have been playing that position for, you know, their entire playing careers from whatever time they started to college. So it was, I mean, it was definitely tough, um, but I just learned to have confidence and stick it out and try to just be as best of a player at whatever position they put me in. I can imagine shooting three-pointers is such a tough thing. I I couldn't never get the range on a shot. I would always have a shot that would just fall so short or fall wide. What is the key to getting a good three-point shot? Uh, You know what? I'm not the best one to tell you about that because (laughs) I never really got that great at it. Um, But I will say, I think uh, in general, whether it's three-pointers, whether it's from the foul line, whether it's a layup, it is that persistence and just practice, practice, practice. It was a lot of, um, and you know, I think it wasn't just me transitioning from post to the wing. Um, other players on the team, we just constantly were, we were gym rats, you know, like we had practice time set up for us, but outside of practice, the key was us getting out into the gym and just practicing doing those shots, like practicing those shots and, and getting better. So the only way you're going to get better at making three-pointers is practicing shooting three-pointers and then getting probably getting into the weight room too (laughs) (laughs) i I always feel especially i know especially as an athlete a college athlete you know there's limited set practice times that you can do as a team how do you try to not you know exceed those practice times as a group and just sort of maybe get a uh maybe impromptu uh practice with a couple of teammates um i think for us it was really um, just finding, like, you know, on days off, we'd go and shoot around or play pickup. Um, and I think, you know, thinking back, that was, you know, that's what we were there for. We were there to get an education and play sports. So it was, we we did have, you know, a good amount of downtime. So I, I don't think we really, you know, we didn't really mind finding time to go shoot around because it was what we loved doing. It's, a, it's what we knew. You know, looking back, we were slightly sheltered because, um, I don't know how it is at other schools, but the University of Maryland does a really great job of setting or helping you manage your time and setting your schedule. So we would have classes from maybe 9 to 12 and then have um, time to go eat lunch. And then we have practice from a, set, a certain time and then we'd have a mandatory study hall. And then, you know, we were pretty free. But I think we just tried to keep that kind of camaraderie and we just stuck together. So I don't know, like in our free time, we just wanted to go play basketball because that's kind of what we enjoyed doing. On the court, what's your go-to move? Oh, man, the hook shot. I got <laughs> I got a hook shot, and there's this I, – I don't know what you call it, um, but there's just – we would jokingly call it the Bree Scoop because there was just um, – I learned to do this move where I would kind of spin around someone and literally like – scoop the ball, like scoop the shot under their arms. Uh, it was kind of something that I just learned from being a little shorter than some of the other post players. So they'd have their hands up and I was just able to kind of do like a scoop move and get the ball in the basket. So, but definitely that hook shot. It's especially to do a hook shot. There's so many questions I have on that. Can you palm the ball and how difficult is it to really sort of get a good hook shot? I know, especially that seems like that is a loss in art phone as well. <laughs> um, for some reason, it came natural. I don't know how I learned the hook shot and how I became good at it. It just became the go-to move. And part of it is my hands aren't really that big, so I wasn't able to palm the ball. 
but I have really long arms. And so I think that just helped because, you know, you can, once you get that, that hook up there and can kind of extend, it's just like having those long arms help. So I don't know, for me, it was, I don't know how it started, but I just know I was able to really perfect that hook shot. And I think the long arms is what really helped. Was it a baby hook or was it sort of more like the Kareem sky hook where he, he goes full extension? Oh, it was the Kareem sky hook. Like it was, you knew it was coming. Cause it was just like, I get the ball. And a lot of times the, the left side of the paint was where I was really good because I could go with the scoop move. Um, or I could also go towards the basket. Um, but yeah, it was like, it was like a, a sky hook for sure. I always feel like, especially when you hear how Kareem shot it, it was so hard to defend a shot like that. I, I feel like the lift of it, I mean, especially because if you try to swat it, the odds are it's going to end up being a goaltend. But, I mean, yep. would you attest to how accurate and how true that is? Uh, I think, for me, I think once I got, thinking back, once I got the ball in position to do that, uh, that hook shot, one of two things was going to happen. Either I was going to get the bucket or I was going to get fouled by someone that was trying to block the hook shot because it creates distance between you and the other player if you you know can really get it down. And I think you know some of it is I, I think I also use my offhand to um, not I don't want to say you know push off on the other player, but I used it to create that distance <laughs> so that it was kind of like they really had to stretch to try to block it. Um, so yeah, I think it's an if you can nail that, I would suggest you know to younger kids. That's money in the bank all the time. I know you mentioned uh, arm length and wingspan and things like that. What else do you feel like you need to have at least good uh, positioning for a hook shot? Um, I think number one, just kind of like, um, I don't know if it's more so your leg strength, but just really getting low and being able to get in position because it all comes down from you being able to post up, get that position so that they can get the ball to you and then being able to bounce off of that so that you can, you know, get in the air and, and, and kind of get that sky hook in. But so I'd say outside of just having the sky hook, it's having, you know, good position, getting low so that you can get in position to get the ball and then being able to just take off from there. What would you say is the highlight game of your basketball career, either high school or college? Highlight game. You know what? There's a couple of games that I played in high school that, just really stood out to me. I think they, because they were just tough games. We had some very tough competition. Um, I, I went to the Bullet School, and we would often play Sidwell friends, and Sidwell had some, some really good basketball players. They were also volleyball slash basketball players, so they definitely had the hops there. Um, and I remember, I, I think it was my senior year, we played them three times, and each game was close. And so I think it wasn't even just necessarily one game. It was just a series, always playing them. That series of playing playing Sidwell Friends was just something that I just always remembered because you knew it was going to be a tough game. Would you say your game was predicated on power or was it speed or the combination of both? Um, I would say it was mainly scrappiness. It wasn't even <laughs> – I wasn't the strongest player. I wasn't the – fastest player I was just the player that truly was going to annoy the heck out of you and never give up it was just like you know I kind of had a even when I'm trying to rebound even if players were taller than me I kind of would do this move where it was if I could just get fingertips on the ball I basically would try to tap it back to myself Um, because I knew like with other players that were just relying on 
just straight talent. I didn't have that. I was just a hardworking player and then use whatever skills I did have to, to supplement that. But um, a lot of it was just I was a good, like, scrappy player that was just going to annoy the heck out of other players because it was just like this girl – she just won't stop moving. She won't stop cutting through the lane. She won't stop like crashing the boards. What would you say? I'm, how much of the professional game, men's and women's, do you get the chance to watch? Oh, man, you know, I don't really get to watch uh, as much as I like to. I definitely watch the playoffs, whether it's for NBA or WNBA. Um, and it's great to see. I think I try to catch some Mystics games here in Washington, several Maryland players. Um, former Maryland players play for the Mystics, so I do try to get out to those games. Um, and and every once in a while, um, I'll try to get to a Wizards game. Uh, they haven't really been that good lately. <laughs> lately. <laughs> so, but yeah, I don't really get to. I don't. I think with work, I don't really get to just watch as much as I'd like to. Were there any aspirations for possibly playing pro ball overseas? No, I mean, you know, that's something that thinking back, I wish I probably. Um, maybe looked into a little bit more. I just think it was never on my radar. I think, you know, looking back, I definitely know there are certain players that were on the team that, that had that goal. They wanted to be, you know, they wanted to go to the WNBA. They wanted to play overseas. Um, I was good enough to play at Maryland, uh, but even going there, I always knew in my mind, um, you know, I was going to go into the you know, traditional workforce afterwards. How do you fall in love with basketball? Yeah, I was like seven years old and my brother was just, I guess he was watching basketball on television and he kind of like, you know, this looks like fun. And my dad put a court up in the backyard and, you know, we just started playing and we would emulate like back then it was UCLA was a big time college team and he would always want to be UCLA, of course, and I'd be Notre Dame and we just kind of played one-on-one and you know, I remember we loved it so much. The bus would be coming down the street and it'd be wintertime like it is now. And we all, we both had long hair at the time. And uh, we'd play one-on-one before we went to school. And our hair was actually where we'd taken a shower before we played, which I don't know what that did. <laughs> but our hair was wet and it would freeze. And we'd get on the school bus and there'd be ice hanging from our hair. So, I mean, that was the love we had for it. And uh, I don't know, my dad was probably 6'3". My brother started to grow when he got in uh, junior high and high school when he was about 6'6". Six, six. Uh, and he had a, a really good high school career and went on and played at Salisbury State University. So he battled with me in the backyard playing one-on-one every day, kind of taught me the game. And then I started playing for junior high and then high school and grew to be eventually 6'8". So that's pretty much how it started. From high school, I transferred from Washington to Chrisville. And I told you before, uh, great coaches. I'm never going to criticize anybody that I've ever played for because they've all been exceptional basketball minds. But I was a little bit ahead of my time because I was a guard and a big man's body. And that was kind of really, you didn't do that back then. I got yelled at on the playgrounds because, you know, I'm shooting 20 footers and they want me to get in there rebound and you know, you get labeled soft or whatever the case may be, but I was just a perimeter player. So I, I, I was a little frustrated at Washington and transferred to Chrisfield and Coach Kane let me face the basket a little bit more my senior year. So I had a pretty good senior year, but I wasn't best player in the Bayside or the best player on my team, but my, I guess you say upside, you know, your potential was there. From there, the best move I made was going to Fork Union Military Academy. 
and prepping a year. And I kind of really blossomed that year. Grew two more inches because I was about 6'6 six, six in high school. Grew to be about 6'8. And that's when I started getting a lot of college looks. Uh, what is the biggest thing that you learned from your time at prep school? Was there a particular skill that you tried to refine or what was it to you that you learned the most from that experience? I played for Fletcher Errett and uh, he's been nominated to be inducted in the Hall of Fame these past two years. And I'm hoping they will put him in this year because he's very deserving. Incredible basketball mind, role model, just a guy you meet if you meet them in your lifetime, one, you've done something special when you're introduced to somebody that not only a basketball mind, but just a, a great person, you know, very religious. He was just a class act. So he kind of refined my knowledge of the game. Like I really thought, and this is not criticizing it, that I had learned basketball from my brother and going to camps and Coach Kane and Coach Sterling and Coach Corbin and Coach Webster, everybody that ever coached me. But when I got to Fork Union, I realized, man, I don't know much. And I think it was because the caliber of player that he was getting at Fork Union, he was able to step up what he was teaching. And uh, i never forget, he called me in the office. He said, Bosman, what do you do well? And I said, well, I shoot from deep. I can handle the ball. I'm very agile and I can run forever. And he said, well, we're going to teach you the art of moving without the ball, coming off screens and getting your shot off quick. And those were the skills I, I really honed there. And he helped me become a, a Division One basketball player. When you had the opportunity going to Georgia, what was the draw of Georgia? And what did you think coaches saw in you there? Well, at Fort Keenan, on, on Tuesday nights, we would set chairs up on a stage. And uh, we had like a little semi-oval out there. And we kept asking Coach the first time we did it, you know, what are we doing? He said, don't worry about it. Just set them up. So we set up 20, 25 chairs. And the next thing you know, you got Dean Smith, Terry Holland, Lefty Drizel, Joe B. Hall was at Kentucky then. They're walking in the gym. And we're like looking at each other like, what in the world's going on? So those guys are in the chairs up on the stage. And... We go through our whole practice. We do a little scrimmage, but, you know, Coach Eric was big into drills. Everything had to be game speed. So we go through practice. I had a pretty good practice. And uh, the next day we're, we're lined up. Uh, you know, every morning I had to wake up and salute the flag. And Coach Eric came in front of me and I saluted him. And he said, when you get done eating, Bosman, Eddie Biedenbach from the University of Georgia wants to see you in the office. And I said, Coach, I'm not hungry. You know, you're talking about a kid from the Eastern Shore who had been recruited <laughs> By Salisbury State, Dell State, and Coach Kirk Hall had, had showed some interest in me at UMES at the time. So I'm coming from like three schools wanting me, and the University of Georgia wants to talk to me. I don't have to eat. I'm ready to go talk to him. And uh, of course, he told me I had to eat. I went and ate and met Coach Biedenbach, who had recruited Pistol Pete Maravich. And I sit down. I'm like, I can't believe it. I'm looking at, you know, this guy. And he said, We're prepared to offer you a full basketball scholarship to the University of Georgia. And I was like, oh, my God. So you had pay phones back then. I went out and you had, you know, wait your turn to get on a pay phone at Fork Union. And I'm putting the change in and mom answers the phone. And I tell you, my brother's response when I told him, you know, he's since passed and I miss him every day. But he was happier than I was that I'd been offered a scholarship. I mean, he was just going crazy. So that was the start. And then, you know, they were the first big school to recruit me. There were several, you know, hundred really after that. But where Georgia had been the first one, I, you know, that's 
kind of sealed my decision, I think. What was it that made Georgia the most interesting choice? And then what was it like when you first got on campus there? Well, I knew Dominique was there. So you knew how great a college player he was and eventually how great a pro player he became. It became a contest between them and West Virginia. I love WVU. And of course, you know, I ended up being there, but it's cold there and it snows a lot. And Georgia is warm. So I like warm weather. When I first got on campus, the first thing I wanted to do is meet Herschel Walker uh, because he was a star football player and the Heisman Trophy winner. And uh, I did have the pleasure of meeting him, getting introduced to him. But Georgia, I think my biggest issue there was I did not go down there in the shape that I should have been in, even though we ran like a 3.2 mile early on. And I ran at like 17.36. I mean, I could run long distance all day long. But I got shin splints really bad, and I think it was because I spent that summer, instead of really working like I should have worked on my game, I spent it kind of, my head was about this big because I was walking around the Eastern Shore, and everybody knew I had got this scholarship to the University of Georgia. Of course, a lot of people back home were like, I can't believe he's, he's that good to go to Georgia now because they're still thinking, you know, how I was in high school as opposed to now. But I, you just get so much better, and you get older and get stronger. But I love the campus of Georgia. It was just kind of ran into the same thing with Hugh Durham. He wanted me to play more of a power forward position. And it just wasn't what I was. Uh, I never could figure that out because Biedenbach had saw me, you know, with a lot of perimeter skills. And that's what he was telling me he was most impressed with. But then when I got to Georgia, it was like, we don't want you to do as much of that. We want you to back up Terry Fair, who was a power forward at the time. What led to your decision ultimately to leave Georgia and then what happened next? Oh, I left kind of abruptly. I remember all the guys on the team were up on the ledge of McCorder Hall, which was the athletic dorm, and they were like kind of dumbfounded because they knew like Vern Fleming, who ended up playing in the NBA, would often tell me that you got all the offensive skills. You just need to strengthen yourself and work on your defense and rebound. And then, you know, at that level, you got to wait unless you're some phenom it was junior senior year I probably would have started and or at least you know saw the floor a lot and I just wasn't I didn't understand that at the time I was looking at I needed something to happen right now so I packed up and left and when I got home uh, my mom was the only person that would speak to me my dad and my brother didn't have much to say to me at all they were very disappointed and my brother called coach Eric at Fork Union and told him what I'd done and Coach Harris said, you need to drive him here to campus. And I'll never forget it. We went in my mom and dad's car and drove to Fork Union. And, uh, you know, walking in there and knowing that you've disappointed somebody that you look up to so much, it was hard. But he called uh, Gail Catlett from West Virginia, explained to him the whole situation. And Catlett said, you have him here first of next semester and we'll give him a full scholarship and he can play at WVU. And then, and it was like, I didn't even have a choice, but they took my car away from me. So my brother, my brother drove me to West Virginia initially. They did get my car back, but he took me to school when I ended up at West Virginia. Going back quickly to Georgia, was that the year that Georgia made the final four? Well, yeah. So I'm, I'm at West Virginia. I'm practicing with the team every day. They go to the NCAA tournament, very good team, a lot of talent on that team. So, you know, I'm, I'm practice all of January, all of February, then the NCAA tournament starts. And guess who wins the East Regional and beats Michael Jordan's North Carolina team and goes to the Final Four? 
the Georgia Bulldogs, which I'm listed in all these newspapers and magazines and different things as being on the team. My name was still listed on the roster. So I could tell a story and say I was on a Final Four team, you know, but I had left. And it it haunts me to the day because, I mean, what's the chances of a, a young man from Chrisfield and Princess Anne, Maryland to make the Final Four and, you know, a chance to play on a Final Four team? So I wasn't feeling real good that March. Fast forward, moving to now being at Morgantown. What was it like once you're finally there? How were you able to overcome the cold weather? And what was the experience? I really should have stayed at West Virginia. I had a nice setup there. My roommate, Dale Blaney, he ended up getting drafted by the Lakers. Great player, great great guy. We're still friends. I get invited back to the reunion every year. They have it, so which, which is really nice. But um, listed as the best shooter at the forward position that Coach Gail Catlett had ever coached, which I got those clippings are kind of like my treasure, you know, from college days. But started off, I played like four games. I was playing about 12 minutes a game. And uh, my mom had had some health issues really the whole time I was at Fort Union in Georgia, and, and they had gotten a little worse at West Virginia. And I had fell in love with a girl back home. And unfortunately, she came down for a weekend, and when she went back, I went behind her. And that was the end of the West Virginia career, which, I mean, every time I go back to the reunion, those guys just said, you kind of just disappeared. And it's crazy because Coach Catlett had called my dad at his hardware store and said, he could come back right now. We're going to start him on the next road trip because we needed some outside shooting. And um, I never went back. But I, I struggled. Um, with coming off the bench, you know, like I can never get into flow. I'd get a couple shots during the game. I needed to be out there. And I think Catlin knew that. And that's why he wanted me to come back. And he was going to start me because he knew I needed those minutes because all the blue gold inner squad games, I, I, you know, I was, I was scoring anywhere from 18 to 20, 25 points a game. But when you're young, and, you know, you got a lot of personal problems going on. You, you know, you tend to do things that you normally wouldn't do. Do you talk about being an outside shooter in an era before the three-point line really came in in the NCAA? How do you feel you would have thrived in the NCAA with the three-point line? Oh, my. <sighs> Two things. I always said if I had the three-point line and the game was like it is now where big men, it's like natural now. They play the perimeter if they're capable. And, and the second thing is if I had played at a school like Loyola Marymount in the late 80s, early 90s, um, who knows? I, and I definitely feel confident in my ability from the age of 19 to early 30s that I could have definitely played overseas professionally. So I don't know where it would have led, you know, defensively and, and strength wise, I would have struggled. You know, in the NBA on offensive end, I'd been fine, but you got to have the whole package to play in that league. Was there any thought about playing uh, internationally even after leaving West Virginia? I was working at ECI from like 88 to 2000. And there I played against the greatest player I've ever played against. And Skip Wise, who was a, a from Baltimore, Maryland, played at Dunbar and Clemson. He was just incredible. We were allowed to play against the inmates. And he just, I can't imagine how good he was in his 20s because I played against him from like 32 to 35. But there was a captain there at one time. I can't even remember his name. And he had some friends in the Celtic organization. And 
he talked about getting me a tryout with them, you know, because he was impressed watching me play. But overseas, even back then, wasn't as um, accessible as it is now. You basically, if you went overseas, then you would finish four years of playing at a high level or, or you know, if even if you were D2 or NAI, you were an All-American. And, and that's how you got over there. So I don't know. I think I give that some thought at that time when he was talking about it. But shortly after that, my daughter was born and, you know, you, you got to have some stability. And, and that was a state job. So it just never panned out. But, you know, like I said, I came from what I would call a pretty good high school career, not an outstanding high school career. And I just blossomed in, at prep school. So who knows? I mean, I feel like I was good enough offensively to play anywhere. But like I said, you got to have the whole package to play in the league, you know. I know that you have a pretty big routine of getting up and shooting every morning. What does that routine consist of? And uh, how long do you spend in the gym? Well, it used to be a little longer. I'm 57 now, so so it's not as long as it was. But my routine is to get up. I get up at 3, and I get to the gym at Crisfield. um, And I'll shoot a series. I start right out shooting. I got like an old shoot away. You've probably seen it on Facebook when I was filming it. Uh, it serves the purpose, but I'll shoot like a series of 10 and then I'll lift. Um, you know, one one day I'm doing chest, then I'm doing arms, then I'm doing uh, shoulders. So I kind of rotate them and I try to put up about 300 shots a day. Used to be five, 500 to 1,000, but you get a little older, you slow down a little bit. But it's, it's more for my mental state of mind now. I mean, I can still shoot it. It's just uh, I don't move as well as I used to. But that, I still do it every day. I got my alarm set already on my phone for tomorrow morning. Who could you best compare your style of play to? Maybe someone who played in the NBA in the past, say, 15, 20 years, especially the game keeps continuously evolving. Mm, man. Would have to be an outside shooter. A lot of people don't know because I've played – in like the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s and played against my son and all his his era. And they, they didn't realize at the time that I was mid-40s to 50. And, you know, so I was just basically a shooter, you know, but I could handle. I could, I could actually at one time, especially, you know, like in the early 80s and mid-80s, I could, I could play point guard at 6'8". Teams would press me into summer league and I could – I had no problem, you know, going by him and, and, and handling the one. I think Luke was a little more savvy, you know, watching him play than maybe I was. But I could definitely grab a rebound and go coast to coast and pull up from 30. So I, I don't know, a little mixture of maybe Bird and him and um, a guy named Oscar Schmidt from Brazil who I, I emulated a lot. I think I became a better shooter after about 24. I watched him play in, in the Pan Am games, and I stopped trying to prove to everybody that I could be a guard and wasting a lot of energy. And then I started coming off screens, and and I think I became a lot better shooter then because I didn't expand so much energy putting the ball on the floor. So I don't know. I'm a combination of all those guys. But I was definitely a different type of player than what I was supposed to be back in the 80s, that's for sure. To you, what do you feel is the one skill that ages well? My shots age well. <laughs> but 
the ability to move, I mean, it's frustrating. I try not to think about it because I was so agile at one time. And now, you know, my, I've had a, I got a real bad ankle. So it's kind of your eye for the basket. I don't think ever leaves. If my ankles are feeling good and I'm shooting in the morning and I've got a good sweat going, I can drain one right after the other without a problem that I don't think that ever leaves. What is the key to a good long distance shot? Because I know even at my height, I'm, I'm barely five, eight. I could never get enough lift or even get a good aim to hit anything maybe outside of 10 feet. Well, what helped me and I, you know, was playing against my brother. So I think the best thing, and I want to say there were a lot of great shooters in my generation was the fact that there were no threes initially when we started to learn how to shoot. So everything was a two. So you learned the proper form of keeping your elbow in and following through. And it didn't matter if you shot a 10 footer or a 15 footer, it was all two points. I think youth, and I did it with my son and I, I wish I hadn't. I, I was so impressed with him being able to shoot it at seven or eight years old, but he was shooting it from here to get it there. You know what I mean? And then, you know, you got to go through a whole other process to get them to shoot properly. So I think the curse, as much as I love the three, I think it should be totally off limits to anybody. You know, I guess they got to have it in high school, but I would say junior high on down, any middle school programs, there shouldn't even be a three-point line on the court because the form of these – Younger players, it's killing them, you know. In your case, if you, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I'm not saying that was your problem. But to me, the form, once you develop the form and the muscle memory, you know, then you can extend, extend your range where you can shoot a little bit deeper. But I think these kids are they're just slinging it up there at a young age and they're not learning how to shoot properly. Yeah, I'm being 37. I was, yeah, I was pretty much – at a certain point, I was one of the tallest kids and then became one of the largest kids, but never grew any taller than 5'8". So it's basically, well, you're pretty much going to play the post, even though you may not be good. Yeah. Just get rebounds. That's all you can. I was going to say that the three-pointer is sort of the basketball equivalent to having kids throw a curveball at a young age because it can really, really do some damage if they're not doing it right, not proper mechanics, and really not learning the, the basics of it. Well, one of the greatest shooters... And ever was Rick Mount. He played at Purdue in, in like the late 60s, early 70s. Went on and had a little bit of an ABA career. But his dad, he actually taught him, like, you know, he started out on a little court with a little ball. And then each year he got stronger, he moved it up. And, you know, teaching him the proper form and technique. And, you know, now you watch at a high school game, if the kids can sneak on the floor, like a, during halftime, balls rolling around. The first thing they do is go right to the three-point line and throw it up there any way they can to get it up there. And so, like I said, as much as I love that three-point line, wish it had been around for my whole career, it's been very detrimental on a shooting form uh, for young players. What led to your decision to move into uh, the educational system and, and eventually coaching? Well, coaching um, came before – my, my actual job in the school, um, being a Division One player and kind of not bragging or nothing, but well-known as a basketball player, I was always allowed to come out and play pickup ball at Christville High School. You know, it was like the, you know, star coming home. So I was, they welcomed me in there. So um, with that, I was always spending time. I entered a, a youth, I was just talking about it the other day, a group of guys like in 84, 85, maybe 86, somewhere in that range, 
they were all like ninth and 10th graders and I entered them in a men's league and trying to get them playing against great competition and, and, and kind of guiding them. So we play pickup ball and I'm teaching while I'm playing. They're respecting me because of my talents and where I played and just started giving back and realizing that they need guidance like I needed guidance. So that went on for two or three years of, you know, playing in the summer league and, and trying to give back and playing pickup ball. And then I think it was 89, maybe the spring of 89, uh, Mr. Phil Rayfield would play pickup ball with us a lot of times. And his son was uh, like eighth or ninth grader in high school at the time. So we're playing and the principal stops the game. It's probably four o'clock in the afternoon. Schools are shut down. And he calls Mr. Rayfield out in the hallway. Uh, Mr. Rayfield at the time was coaching the girls team at Christopher High School. So Mr. Rayfield comes back into gym and I says, is everything all right? He said, yeah. He said, how would you like to be my assistant coach next year? Because Mr. Riggins just asked me to be the head boys basketball coach here at Christopher High School. And of course, I'm late. I'm in, you know what I mean? So that's how it started. He, he asked me and he asked Coach Dale Turpin to become his assistant. In 1990-91, we became the uh, staff at Christopher High School. And that year, we won a Bayside Championship. We had an all- unbelievable talent on that team and the team the following year. So that's how it all started. You were one of the people, first people I talked to when, when Coach Rayfield passed, and, and you talked about the influence that he had on him. What was the biggest key piece of knowledge that you were able to get from Coach Rayfield? Oh, man. Much like Coach Eric, like I was fortunate, you know, besides my brother and my father, that I had two male figures come into my life that were just incredible people. He started right off with that program. He said, we're going to run it like UCLA. Um, he did some things that you probably can't do in the school system anymore. You know, you put God first, family second, and then school and then basketball down the line. He had all the quotes, put them up all over the locker room, and that's how we carried the program. You had to wear a sport coat and a tie. Uh, those teams went to uh, each team member's church on Sunday as a team, you know, bonded with the community. He was a lot calmer than me. I was like hyper and real talkative, and, and he, he was more mellow. So it would give me a little balance in my life. And he's just incredible. Incredible coach, incredible person. I mean, he did a great job with that program. When you ended up moving on and taking on the head coach level, what was your first head coaching job? So I helped Coach Rayfield, was actually his bench assistant the first two years, and then different things. I got married and work schedule, whatever. I, I couldn't devote myself to be at a practice all the time, but I was like the conditioning coach for like the next four or five years for him. So I was still staff member. Um, and some games I would attend, it would just, when I could or be there, I'd, I'm on the bench. But anyhow, I did that until like 98. And then 98, he came to me and he said, what do you think about coaching the girls basketball program here? And I was like, coach girls? Like, I can't, I don't know. I don't know if I can coach girls basketball. And he said, well, look, they've had a terrible past. Don't win many games. Nobody takes pride in the program. And, I think you could do a good job with them. So I accepted the the position as girls head coach in 98-99. And uh, we were 0-23 that first year. And I remember, not mentioning any names, but coaches would press you like, I'm as competitive as any man on this earth. But I do believe if you're winning a high school basketball game 70-15 to 15 in the fourth quarter, you don't have to have a full court press on. And that's how my first couple games were. 
And I remember going back to Mr. Tim Tolls, who was the AD, and I said, is this how this is supposed to be? And he said, well, I endured it for three years that I coached the girls here. He said, I know. And I said, well, I was 37 at the time, and I remember thinking to myself, if I'd been 25, I, that would have been my last year coaching girls basketball. But something clicked. Like, I was at the Civic Center, and at that time, years ago, all – at one time, they played all the playoff games at Salisbury State, but at that time, they played them all at the Civic Center. So, Mr. Bill Kane, my high school coach, came to my – actually, they were watch Chrisville's boys, but we happened to play, like, before them. And we got beat, of course, in the final game of the, uh, our season and the first game of the playoffs. And I remember he walked over there to me, and he said, you're going to be a great coach. And I was like, Coach Kane, I was 0-23, and I just lost – you know, by 20 points to Colonel Richardson. Why are you saying that? He said, because you coached from the first moment of the game to the last moment, and it didn't matter what the score was, you were still coaching. And, uh, I, you know, it just clicked. And I made a vow then that we're going to pay all these schools back. We're going to build this program because nobody cares about the girls, and I can't leave them after one year like everybody else have been doing. I'm going to stick this out and, and make something of this program. And that's kind of how it started me as a head coach. When it comes to your coaching style, what do you say? Are you more a, uh, I know they always talk about when coaches at any sport, it's sometimes more about the Jimmys and Joes and the X's and O's. Were you more a strategic person or more of a get the most out of a player? Well, at this level, and, and especially girls where I you know, started as my head coach, and I'm a firm believer in they needed a lot of skill work. So you do a lot of fundamental ball handling drills, layup drills, shooting drills. Because it doesn't matter, and I'm speaking to this first group that I coach, it didn't matter if I ran all these sophisticated offenses, if at the end result, the girl that came off the screen can't shoot, you know what I mean, or she can't put the ball on the floor. So I, I was a big-time hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half straight fundamentals. And then we put in sets and different things at the end for out-of-bounds plays or offense or whatever the case may be, and it was very successful for us. So I think at this level – you have to be a motivator. You have to be a father, a counselor, you know, but you got to stress those fundamentals because the X's and O's are great. And I'm not saying, you know, I don't know the X's and O's, but I always felt like at a high school level and that boys and girls, it's, it's a little bit more to it than just the X's and O's. So I'm a little bit of a combination of that. But girls wise, I think you just need to get them in the gym and uh, work on their skill because they don't play as much pickup ball normally as boys do. So it doesn't come as natural to them. So you have to work at it a little bit. more. But I guess I'm kind of old school when it comes to that. I think that you put in that work in the gym, like the kid can't dribble with his left hand. If you're never working on that, you know, sooner or later, that's going to bite you during the game. So I think fundamentals come first. And then as they develop and get a little more skilled, then you put in a little more X's and O's. When did you start seeing the turnaround with the girls? And what was the highlight moment where you saw these girls have the potential to win the conference we were on a, a five-year plan and we didn't win the first year we won seven and then we won eight the next two years and that third year i kind of felt like it was coming together the girls were starting to develop because like i said we did a lot of dribbling drills a lot of ball handling layup drills and you could see girls that normally couldn't handle the ball and now they're starting to, you know, go between her legs behind her back and do a little fancy moves and each state, but they're starting to get it. So we got into playoffs my fourth year there and we went on a run and we were at Mardella 
Actually, where I thought they got it was probably a Snow Hill game. Snow Hill was one of the first teams that beat me like 75 to 13 that first year. And we played fabulous. So we had beaten, you know, some lower-seeded teams, you know, but this was a marquee team. And uh, I'm watching the girls, and we're up, and I'm looking at the clock, and, and, and Nitra Cannon's at the free-throw line, and she's shooting free-throws. And I hear all this crying behind me on the bench and I look out on the floor and like two or three of the girls are crying and we're up we basically this game's over and then I start crying you know what I mean and everybody was like what in the world <laughs> all crying over but these girls you know went from 0 and 23 nobody caring about them not, you know and now they're there and um we went on a run that year and I'll never forget Nicole Brown hit uh two free throws to put us up by three against Cambridge and we won the semifinals to go to the regional final. They claimed that I started jumping up and down in front of the scores table, and I jumped all the way underneath our basket free throw. And that's where I ended up. I don't know how true that is. But uh, Mr. Tom Davis had to come in the locker room and actually get me out of the locker room. I was so emotional wreck for celebration on the floor because, uh, you know, when, when you see these kids that, you know, basically – crawling and out of running you know i mean it was just a tremendous feeling that's five years to this day of my basketball life was that first five years of coaching those girls after Crystal girls what did you move next well we, we went back to the regional final uh the next year so it was two years in a row we got beat by mardell and pokemo two premier girls basketball programs and then the superintendent of schools and assistant superintendent of schools and i think the director came to me and asked me if I would be interested in coaching the boys team and being an athletic director at Washington high school. And, um, well, it was a struggle because I didn't want to leave Chris. I was comfortable there, but then part of me was like, you need to try to better yourself, you know, with the AD position included and coaching head coach of boys basketball, try your luck at boys basketball. So I accepted it and kind of, I, I felt bad because a couple of the girls that I left behind, I didn't realize how much I had hurt them by leaving them. So uh, that kind of weighed on me because sometimes when you make these moves and you're only thinking about you, you don't realize how much effect those moves have on others. And that bothered me, but I loved it at Washington High. i tell you the story. I probably still would be there coaching boys, but um, we went in and kind of turned that program around. They had been struggling a little bit and uh, we got it going. Coach Rob McCready and myself put in a lot of time and had three good years there. But um, my son was actually getting into basketball then, and he was a crabber all the way. So, you know, I'm thinking, I got this head coaching job. You can come to Washington and play for me. He said, Dad, I'm not playing for Washington. I'm playing for Chrisville. <laughs> so I envisioned myself eventually going back. I knew Mr. Rayfield wasn't going to coach much longer. Maybe I'll go back and, and hopefully get that position and, and have a chance to coach boys at Chrisville, but things that just went different directions for me. You had a year at Snow Hill. What was that like coming in, especially with, uh, I know you were there when, when Little went to Snow Hill as well, and then in the situation when Alan Miller passed, you were named the head coach. What was that experience like taking over? And it's a situation where you're coming in, it's a whole different team from the team that yeah. went to States. What was that experience like? They were a great bunch, and, and I think you lose your whole starting five that goes to college part from the year before. I think 
we had one returning starter come back. So, I mean, the guy, you know, it was just, we were lacking some size, you know, and, and a couple of things, but I enjoyed the year. I mean, I didn't, I guess a lot of people felt like I was under a lot of pressure to win because, because of coach Miller being there before me, but people from Snow Hill were great. You know, I mean, I think they realized that we were battling and we, we were competing, but we just weren't the teams that they had had before. You got to be realistic in that. I was happy that we won the very first game in honor of coach Miller because he was such a legend on the Eastern shore. Nobody can replace a guy like that. You know I mean? I didn't go in there expecting to replace him and, you know, just a great, great coach. And, you know, it, it was a good year. I can't say I didn't enjoy it. I could have stayed there, but I chose, this is crazy, but I was athletic director at Chrisfield and head coach of another high school's program. You know, I just didn't feel real comfortable with that. And I don't know, I, I just, you know, figured it, it was time just to return to Chrisfield as AD and, and help with the basketball program down there. Mm-hmm. And just to close to the chapter, Snow, I have to imagine that the players were still reeling over his loss because it was something so sudden, too. I remember yeah. hearing the news when he passed away. I was at work when I heard the news. Actually, I think it was off that day. I think my nephew or my niece told me, and then I was shocked when it happened. But Yeah, actually, he, um, had we had to go get my son from school that day because he was so upset. I mean, you know, because it was so sudden. And, you know, I, I don't care. It's just tragic, you know anybody passing away and, and he was such a, a legend in that community he was just i don't know it was it was a tough year but i tell you i can't complain those kids were great they were a fun bunch to be around friends with almost all of them on facebook i tried to stay in touch with them i saw one the other day in salisbury and you know you give me a big old wave we had a good year it just it was a tough year you're not as talented as as the team was the year before overall and then of course coach miller's passing and it was just you know, I look back on it, and I, I'm, I'm glad I did it. You know, I mean, it was an experience for me and, and something different for me. And um, like I said, I was really honored that we won that first game and we had dedicated that first game to him. So that means a lot to me that we did win that game and we, we did it in his honor. So good program. Moving back to Chris Field, I know you took the helm again of the girls team. Before we go into that discussion about taking over the girls team again, Comparing coaching boys to girls, really, what are the big differences that you see in coaching each? What do you feel like is the biggest fundamental that lacks in each gender when it comes to basketball? Well, uh, girls, to me, I think I've enjoyed coaching the girls a little bit more than the guys because they listen. And it's just kind of they're so emotional at times, you know, like when they win or something's going good for them, you know what I mean? It's just a joy that you see that they're, I mean, it just comes right out. They're like ecstatic over a move they've made or a shot they've made. Or Boys are trying at times. I've coached AAU, I've coached middle school, I've coached high school. I have a knack of always relating pretty well with most of the players that I coach because I just have a good rapport with them. So I, I don't know if I favor one or the other. Watching the development in girls as far as their skill level, from where they start to where they begin is really fulfilling because you see a big, big change in, in their game. But um, I've enjoyed both. Now, as far as their fundamental weakness, I think the boys don't work on fundamentals enough. They want to skip the fundamentals and go right to the fancy stuff. And I think that's very frustrating because a lot of times their shots affected by it and their ball handling is affected by it. And um, you got a process. And I think back in our day, we took that process. We learned, we went to camps. We learned the fundamentals, the footwork, 
uh, the proper way of doing things. So if these guys now with all this athletic ability would do that, oh my gosh, I can't imagine, you know, the product that would be coming out. Going into the rebuild again of, of the girls program in Crisfield, what was the difference between this go round and the first go round? Um, not much difference. I felt like the, the girls that I had the, the first go around were they ran track and they played basketball. So you, you didn't have, and trust me, I think that kids should play all sports, but I didn't have to battle in the summertime. When I got them in a summer league, they all were in the summer league. So this group has been a lot of field hockey players and they play field hockey year round. So it's kind of hard to get them in the off season to get in a summer league or go to camps. And, and that makes it difficult because that's when you, you really develop from the end of the season in March to November. That's when you work on becoming a, a better basketball player. And then you refine it and practice and, and show it off during the game. So this time I've had great experiences. We've beaten all, you know, one time or other, we've beaten everybody in the conference during this stretch. We made it to a sectional final a couple of years ago. So we've had some success, but I've had some things happen. I've had some girls leave the program and transfer, not for so much basketball reasons, but they moved or different things happen. If a couple of girls stay, like last year, we struggled, uh, only won two games, but our best player left us. And if she had come back, we probably would have won the region. And her actual senior class, I had every girl and it was a great freshman class. They all left for different reasons. If they had been there last year, we we definitely would have won the region. And, and I don't know how we would have done it at the state level, but regional championship would have been ours. So those things have happened a little more. I don't want to blame it on the times, but because I did it. How am I supposed to criticize transferring when I've done it? Or I did it several times, both at the high school and college levels, you know, but we're, we're too easy to get disgruntled over things instead of, you know, communicating, fighting through some things and, and sticking it out. And sometimes you go to places and things don't turn out that well there either. So other than that, I mean, this run's been good. I think it could have been a lot better. I do think the year we went to the sectional finals, I think we would have won it. But one of my best players didn't play the year before. She just didn't want to play basketball that year. She had played you know, had another year under her belt, there's no doubt in my mind it, that we would have probably won the region that year too. So, I mean, we've had success, but it, it's just been a little different because, of, you know, when girls are playing other sports, when field hockey starts, they go play field hockey. When softball starts, they go play softball. Those girls ran track. So, I mean, track practice, you run, you know, you're training, but it's not like they don't have like a track summer league and so those girls were in the gym a lot more. I think that's the only difference. And they were incredible athletes. One thing I forgot to ask you, aside from basketball, what was your other favorite sport to play? None. <laughs> no, I actually love all sports. I was, I started out as a swimmer and, and a baseball player. I was a pretty good swimmer when I was younger and made the Little League All-Star team a couple of years. So I was a pretty good baseball player. And I love the you know other sports, playing football in the backyard and all, but it, it's just something about basketball that just kind of hooked me early on. And then, you know, when I had some rough moments, I look back, I was five ten and a half in the ninth grade. And by the end of my 10th grade year, I was six four and a half. So that's like six inches you grow, you know what I mean? And that kind of hurt me a little bit because I, I can remember just being in pain 
you know, a lot of times legs were hurting and everything never could understand why, but you know, that growth spurt that you take at that age, it was rough, but never stopped loving basketball. I mean, it's just, it's just been something that kind of on my mind 24 hours a day. It's, it's crazy to say that, but you know, I mean, you're always thinking about something, you know, playing it or when you play it, who you played against a game you coached. It's just, you know, maybe maybe I'm a little bit too much fanatical over it. I don't know. I can't even – even now at my age, I don't like watching a game because if I watch it, I want to play. You know, I, I just just love it. But other than that, I guess swimming and, and baseball early on were probably right there. Who's your favorite all-time NBA player and who's your favorite NBA player now? Well, I like Bird because I thought, you know, he came in and, and – and, Played a perimeter game at six nine, and and I like the way he changed the game a little bit. Him and Magic. Um, my favorite player is Oscar Smith from Brazil. Uh, you know, I just kind of fell in love with him as a shooter and a scorer, and and it kind of tried to emulate you know the way he played. So he's probably my my favorite player of all time. I don't know. I, I like Jordan and and you know, Kobe Bryant, I got respect for those two. Cause I think they, they work, people don't understand how hard they work on their game when they, you know, they were just there. There's guys probably that have come along in the NBA that were as good as them, but I don't know if they had that work ethic that they had and that killer instinct. So I respected both of them. Magic Johnson, I think is, uh, you know, just an unbelievable six, nine point guard. I, I liked his game also. Uh, if I had to pick one today, I like Curry. I like Curry because uh, I proved everybody wrong. I wish you could – I don't know how to pull it up on Facebook, but when he came in the league, everybody was talking about Brandon Jennings and some other players, and I said, this kid is going to be the best player. And they were like, no, he's too small. He didn't. But I knew his dad was an NBA player, so it's in his bloodline. And his work ethic, I don't think people understand how hard he's worked on, you know, all those things that they think are so amazing now. I mean, he puts in hours and hours a day refining those little moves he does and getting a shot off quick. So I, I'm a big fan of, of, of Curry. I was going to say this. Who do you think is the greatest NBA player of all time? I know it's a thing. Michael that Jordan. Goes, Jordan? I, Michael know, Jordan. <laughs> see, I look at it, and I had this discussion before. You know, I look at Kareem, Jordan, to me, I think it's Kareem and, and Jordan 1A, 1B, because just because what Kareem could do and just the fact that a big man who could uh, really push the ball up the court and just what he could do and just the fact that I look at the dunk rule that they basically had named after him for a long time. You can't, like, I, uh, and I say Jordan, you know, that's who I believe. I say he's the best ever Jordan is. My dad used to say that Wilt was, and then he said that Bird and Magic were, but when Jordan retired from the NBA and played baseball for those few years, you know, he came back. He wasn't as athletic as he once was. You know, you know what I mean? He had lost a, a step and couldn't jump like he once could. But Dean Smith <laughs> had taught him a lot of fundamentals at North Carolina in that short period of time. And people don't realize his footwork was just incredible. And he was able to come back and still win, what, three more NBA championships after, you know, after being out for a while and being older. And that's when my dad looked at me and said, he's the best ever. You know, you can argue LeBron, you can argue Jabbar, Will, all great players, Magic, Bird, um, Kevin Durant. I mean, these guys are incredible. But to me, Jordan 
with his killer instinct and uh, his work ethic and that ability, even after he lost some athleticism, I, I think he's the greatest of all time in my mind. Do you feel that the NBA has evolved to uh, more of a guards game than it was a big man's game in its early days? I think the rules have changed so much to me. And I think Luca says it often that it's harder to score overseas than it is in the NBA. And I, I believe that. Like I watch some of the NBA highlights and I'm like, man, if I, if I had that space at 57, I can make that shot. You know what I mean? It's just so wide open. And I think it's, it's fan friendly. You know what I mean? No hand checking and the defensive three seconds or the call, you know, where you can't just clog the lane up and everything like that. It's made it, you know, fans don't want to come and watch an NBA game and the game's 80 to 89. They want 120 to, you know, 119 and they want to see the dunks and the flare and the flash. So, I mean, it's, it's a great game and they're, and my gosh, you know, they're, they're great athletes and all, but I think it's an easier game now. I think it'd be easier to score in today's NBA setting as it was back in the seventies and eighties when they could bump you and, and basically foul you. <laughs> but um, I'm not saying that these guys aren't great basketball players, but I do think it's, it's a, it's a fan friendly game. It's more for entertainment. Now they put on a show. They're very good. So still love it. You know what I mean? But I just think the game has changed. Was there a particular matchup that you enjoyed coaching against or playing against that when you hear this name, okay, I'm ready. My game's going to be elevated. Um, Pretty much all these young guys that play now, you know, even when Andre was overseas and he was coming home, um, you know, I had that little, I'm going to show him that old man can still do it. Uh, he never wouldn't let anybody show you up. You know, I just, I played better when I was a star on the other team and I felt like I had something to prove. So I guess the Collins brothers in Chrisfield, anybody came from out of town and played in the summer league, always had a little bit of fire lit underneath of me just to prove some I could play. As a coach, what game did you always get your players the most psyched up for? I know there's always that one rivalry game, whether whether you're at Washington, whether you're at Chris Field. Was there always a game on the schedule, some coach that you felt like you could go toe-to-toe strategy or gameplay with? Yeah, well, girls-wise, you wanted to beat Mardella in Pokemon. Um, McCool, Coach McCool, and, uh, you know, you kind of wanted to beat her uh, because she was like the marquee coach around, you know what I mean? And Coach Gladden at Pocomo, she was another one. They were the big games for the girls. For boys, always Washington High, or when I was at Washington High, it was Chrisfield, you know, because that's the county rivalry, and everybody in the county is going to be in that gym. And if they're not in the gym, they're going to be, you know, trying to get in the gym to watch that game. So that was big. Um, Why High, your Snow Hills, your Pocomo, they're so good and so competitive, you kind of get pumped up for those games. The buzz is in the air on those nights, you could say, I guess, you know. Yeah, I can definitely think of so many games where you're told get there early because they're not letting anybody in after a certain point. And if you don't get there in time, you're not getting in unless you got a Oh, yeah, pass. absolutely. Back in the day, I mean, if you if you didn't get there before the JV game started, you were done. You're not getting in, you know. Good times. I hope you enjoyed the chance to look back at some of these past interviews. And for you first-time listeners, I hope you liked what you heard from these guests. Next time, we go through the lost and found for an interview I did with Christian Blake, where he talks about his passion for music, his evolving taste, and how he was able to regain his lost voice. 
As always, all episodes of The Sports Refuge can be found wherever podcasts are heard, including Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, as well as on The Sports Refuge website. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of these apps and leave a mention, which we'll read on a future episode. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.